Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hi there, listeners. You have returned to Cycling in Alignment for another episode, and I am grateful you're here. Today, I've got a good one, Greg Choate. He's a bike fitter who lives in Las Vegas, Nevada, and Greg and I have many parallel philosophies. Now, don't get all stressed out about me only picking guests that I agree with on this pod. At some point, I'll have some people on here and we can get into some arm wrestling matches and start dissecting things that we don't agree on. But Greg is a really well-spoken and intelligent bike fitter who's got a huge amount of experience. He's been fitting about twice as long as I have. He's also a coach, which is a parallel to my own career path. So we had a lot to unpack and our conversation kind of gets a bit philosophical at times, but we also leave you with lots of actionable nuggets and we all like nuggets, don't we? So without further prognostication, as I'm prone to say, or prevaricating about the bush, enjoy Greg Choate. Greg Choate, welcome to Cycling and Alignment. Thank you so much for making time to come and chat with me today. And um, it's been a while since we've talked. I think we met the first time at Vegas when I was out with the Hog Group, and that was what 2013. Yeah, 14, it was like, right? that was. I think that was the second time we got Steve to come up. Yeah, or maybe. The, yeah, and that was you had the group there with Jerry and the crew, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that, that was that was probably obviously you know your reputation precedes you a lot more than mine precedes me. So yeah, I knew exactly who you were for many years. So. Mm. Well, you know, that's how it works when you ride around in stretchy pants. Sometimes people notice you, I guess. I don't know why that's a thing, but I mean, uh, you know, you and I have very parallel, a lot of parallels in our professional paths. Uh, I'm a fitter and a coach. You're also a fitter and a coach. So, but you've been doing it longer than I have. You've been fitting for over 20 years now. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I started fitting back to 1999, 2000 was the start of my journey. Okay. Uh, back back home after a pretty pretty nasty injury, which ironically had nothing to do with cycling. I was moving a moving a, a washing machine in my house mm-hmm. and threw my back out and couldn't uh, couldn't ride. Definitely couldn't you know had had difficulty walking. So, but it was basically ended up you know sh- short story is a nerve impingement. And a training buddy of mine, uh, Gordon Walker, back home, who's a you know a, a pretty big multi-sport athlete, cyclist, and stuff. And he's like, "Oh, you need to go and see this guy, who I went to college with, and when saw this, I don't know whether we call him an osteopath or basically I used to call Scott a witch doctor because uh, <laughs> he he lived out in the country and he wouldn't see you in the city because the energy in the city was bad, and so uh-huh. you had to come out to his office, which was about an uh, 45, 50 minutes outside of the center of Auckland. So you had to drive out there, you had to see him, then he'd do his, his stuff on you, like color testing and an adjustment. And then you weren't allowed to leave. You know, you couldn't finish your appointment and walk out to your car because you had to let everything settle. So he basically kept you in a holding pen for a little while. And <laughs> he was the guy who fixed me up. And that was the hmm. moment that I realized that the traditional processes of positioning somebody on a bike didn't really work for everybody that was you know because i grew up in a i was lucky to grow up in a really great cycling community in new zealand 
and uh, we would have we had a large club. We had some guys who were riding, you know, Euro Pro at that time. And one of my big influences was um, a guy called Eric McKenzie, who Eric McKenzie rode. If you have a look in Greg LeMond's book of cycling, there's a, a photograph of Eric. You know, LeMond says, this is how you go downhill. Eric's going downhill, no hands with both his hands, adjusting his rear brake. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, he's pretty well balanced on a bike, I'd uh-huh. say. Mm-hmm. But Eric was like the guy, you know, we all looked up to. And Steve Swart was another one. Yep. Uh, you know, he was a, a big sort of mentor of mine, worked at a local bike store, shop. And back then he was riding with Cause Light. Yep. And uh, yeah, that was sort of, we had this great group of cyclists. And, you know, they would basically put you on a bike. And this is how you go on a bike. And the old guys would say, you know, if you were fast, that was good. But nobody really addressed bike fit. Mm. And it wasn't until I had problems and I went through the traditional processes that I found out that those sort of didn't work for everybody. Mm-hmm. So, but this guy who you worked with, this osteo slash witch doctor, he wasn't a fitter per se. He was no, no, he was just a he was just a health healthcare professional, movement guy, and it was like you know that's the realm that sort of opened my eyes up to you know how 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 we moved and Hmm. how much that could make a difference. Cause literally I was out for 18 months, um, where I'd have like nerves shooting down my leg. I'd be walking through the, through the, uh, supermarket, uh, pushing my trolley and, and my leg would just give way. And I'd end up in a pile in the middle of the, of the aisle. Wow. And it was just like, so, and the interesting thing is I couldn't ride. I couldn't run every now and then I had trouble walking, but I ended up taking up kayaking, and just because of the nature of being in a kayak wedged in with your pelvis neutralized, I was racing flat water kayaks, racing K1s, and then pe- uh, paddling whitewater. And whitewater, you're even more wedged in a boat. So in a small whitewater boat, you've got hip pads on, you've got knee braces. So your pelvis didn't move. My upper body didn't. I never had a problem kayaking. I was, you know, this was back at the start of the days of doing, you know, whitewater tricks and stuff like that. I could throw the boat around, no problems at all. But then if I tried to run or ride a bike, I was in incredible pain. Basically, the lower body from the iliac crest or the hip bones down was completely immobilized. But you could rotate in the thoracic spine, even in the lumbar spine. You could do everything with your arms in all planes. Yep. Is that fair? And it didn't didn't have an impact on that nerve impingement, so you were able to do that. Nothing, yeah. Just because the pelvis was so stabilized. Uh Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, so you ended up with, you know, you get massive thoracic rotation because you're, you're, you know, letting your head and your shoulders and your blade drive the movements. Yeah, so you had massive thoracic movement, and but that pelvis was so stabilized and your feet are pushed against the bulkhead at the front of the boat and your knees are up under knee braces. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I was had no problems. And all of a sudden, you know, when I went to see Scott and Scott, you know, tuned me up, Literally, I want to say six weeks post me not being able to ride for quite a long time, I was back competing uh, on the bike wow. in, in a pretty substantial multi-sport event, wow. you know, mountain biking and road biking. So as soon as that nerve impingement was freed up, you everything just switched on again and you were able to work the muscles. Yep. And, yeah, good to go. And I had And I had really good, you know, or pretty good aerobic conditioning from being in the boat. Hmm. And, um, and ironically, the leg strength had gone a little bit, mm-hmm. but I hadn't atrophied hugely. It was really interesting. Um, so yeah, that's mm. sort of the, the short story. That's really interesting. It sounds like your witch doctor guy, sort of a, a hybrid of Steve's hogs methods a bit. And he's, he used to use more colored lenses with his clients and look at yep. 
eye function left and right and how that influenced the, the height of the pelvis and things. He's kind of moved on from that now a little bit, but also it sounds a bit like Scott Story, who's my health, holistic healthcare practitioner here in Boulder. I've done a couple pods with him and he's also in witch doctor territory for sure. Uh, very holistic and just what you said at the end about how you kind of leave in a holding pen before you go. Well, also we drive to his house, which is about 30 minutes up Lee Hill road outside of town to go to his office. And it's in the forest and it's very quiet and there's a lot of good energy there. And, and then he works on you and he does a series, you know, he does acupuncture and Cairo craniosacral, uh, frequently works with different substances on the body to help bring things back in line. He does a lot of visceral manipulation and works with, uh, What's that metal uh, blade called that you can use to like move the Graston. fascia? Sorry. Graston blades. Yes. Graston thank you. Blades. Yes. Graston technique. Yeah. Yep. He does that. So, and... Yeah. So let's just say, you know, a bit of a background. I, I grew up a lot of my young years living in Asia and little Asian uh, grandmas used to do that to me with, with silver spoons and stuff uh -huh. like that. So yep. Graston being the brand and sort of normalized that mm -hmm. technique, but like I'm trained in what's called, uh, um, PM, PMT, which is Pensity Method, which is a you know a, a physio Cairo, a physio out these parts, who's developed the same thing, except you know we do it with plastic blades mm -hmm. rather than metal blades. So yeah, it's mm -hmm. a yeah, yeah. And then I would see Scott, and then at the end he does acupuncture, puts you on a a German machine that pulses your body with happy wavelengths of harmon harmonious electric vibes. I guess is a really Dumb, yeah, it's called the, 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 the magnetic it. pad. The magnetic yeah, it's a magnetic pad. pad. Yeah, and it's yeah. – I can't remember the name of the machine at the moment. I think it begins with an M. It's called a – it'll come to me. Yeah. Senior yeah. moment. Yeah, and uh, he runs a 20- or 25-minute program that's got a specific harmonic resonance that's designed to bring about you know relaxation or reduction of inflammation or whatever he kind of feels is appropriate. And you lay in a chair with your needles in doing this machine, and then you that's your holding pen, so to speak. So it's – and then you're then you come out and you're ready to to handle the world <laughs> yeah i think it's that whole the, the, you know we live in a society which is just moving all the time mm. and we just don't take enough time like i'm also a big meditation guy and i you know I, I i like to take the time to to not move to um yeah you know, ironically, it was, this was my it was my my a birthday last week, and my my parents sent me from New Zealand a, a Buddhist meditation drum. Oh, cool! Um, which you basically just sit down and listen to the resonance of the frequency. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, yeah, I'm just I'm dying to get up in one of the canyons up around Vegas and sit oh, up there by myself by myself and beat my drum, which is <laughs> that sounds super cool. Yeah. What kind of meditation do you practice specifically or do you have a specific practice or is it more? No, not a specific practice, just about mainly everything based around breath, you know, being really conscious, the, the fundamentals of, of it's it, the comments of, you know, the concepts of clearing your mind, I find very difficult from a standpoint of, you know, when you're trying to think about clearing your mind, you're actually thinking about something. So, right just being present in your breath and focusing on breath work is a, mm. is, you know, really big for me because it's relatively important. Like I said to a lot of people, you know, um, breathing is like sex. It doesn't really seem important until you're not getting any. <laughs> so, you mm. know, it's breathing, breathing's big. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a meditation teacher that I've worked with a bit, Michael Holt, he talks about how, you know, the mind is like an ocean. It's always, there are always waves in the ocean. There's always a current. There's always a, 
a flow and, and a tide coming in and a tide coming out and there's movement, sometimes the mind is more active and this ocean, you know, there are a lot of white caps and, you know, big waves and things. And other times it's more tranquil, but it's always moving. It's a fluid thing. So right. to calm the mind, I think, I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible. There, I'm sure Buddhist monks who can bring their sure, heart rate yeah. to 12 beats a minute and drop their brain waves down to, you know, almost dead or whatever, but that's not for the rest of us who have been raised in a Western culture, that's maybe perhaps not an attainable goal, nor is it necessarily a desirable goal. It's more about, Michael talks about your mind being basically a giant elephant and yeah. the elephant wanders. And when you just let it do what it's going to do, it wanders and tramples over stuff, you know, and knocks down walls and maybe goes into rooms that we don't necessarily want to occupy, right? Old rooms that have crappy feelings in them or bad experiences that we don't need to relive and rehash over and over again. We don't need to ruminate on, or maybe it goes down into rooms that involve thought processes that aren't constructive, like negative self-talk or, you know, <laughs> like we started off our conversation, like, Oh, am, why am I doing this? Am I, is anybody going to pay attention or am I going to be horrible at this? Or, you know, I don't know anything about whatever I'm talking about, etc. And his practice is we learn to train our elephant to go where we want it to go. And mm -hmm. learn that that ele those thoughts that just because it wanders in this room doesn't mean we have to be attached to those thoughts. We're not identifying with those thoughts. They're not who we are per se. What we are is consciousness. And we can direct our consciousness to help that elephant kind of go towards thought patterns that we want. Things like gratitude or appreciation or creativity or expression of our dream and goal, right? So... That's... Yeah, I think I think like anything, you, if you want to be, yeah, if you want to go to the end of something as a practice, you know, doing yoga and being a yogi are two different things. Uh, and you know, and, and uh, bringing that back to cycling, it's like Olympic lifting and lifting for strength using Olympic movements. They're two completely different things. Like mm -hmm. Olympic lifting is a sport. And, and so you have to execute in a certain way, but using strength work to improve your cycling, you can use, we're using those same types of lifts, but we're just using them in a different way through a different range. We're not, you know, mm -hmm. you're not a six foot three cyclist shouldn't be cracking a deadlift off the ground. It just doesn't have that sort of mobility. Right. So you still want to use deadlifts. Um, Especially if that so, six three cyclist has really long femurs, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've never seen. Yeah. You know, go. I mean, you've been to the Olympics. Yeah. I'm like, go to an Olympic weightlifting event. Mm. There's no tall Olympic weightlifters. Right. Right. Yeah. There's a morpher type which which makes you you know more likely to be a weightlifter. And it's being closer to the ground, so you have to move the weight less distance. Right. 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 At, uh, but that's what makes cycling unique is we have so many phenotypes or morphotypes correct. that can succeed in our sport, and then as fitters. Yeah. We get to deal with that mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> so both good things about cycling and also challenges from our side. Right? <laughs> my my favorite one is my Indian proverb, which is, uh, uh, "Man is to bicycle as fish is to elephant." <laughs> I, I had to translate that one, but yeah, you know, it's like to remember. To... Bicycle. Man is to bicycle as fish is to elephant. As fish and is to just, elephant. They're just not. They're just not re very well related, you know. Tell us, Greg, a bit about who you've studied with and who influenced your line of thought and your philosophies. How did you, what was your journey about, how did you end up becoming a bike fitter? I mean, you had your injury experience and you yeah. were racing bikes before that, right? But yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 So I, I was a, you know, I was a, I like to say I was an average cyclist who, who, who rode with really good cyclists. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I was uh, trained with, you know, a lot, a lot of top guys back home, guys who went to the Olympics and stuff like that, but uh, was that guy who was never quite able to make it the seventh time or the eighth time up to climb. Mm. Uh, but, um, you know, so I was lucky enough to be competitive and I had some good results along the way. But uh, I transitioned to the multi-sport, so which you know back in those days was the eco challenge stuff and the xerox races and which was known about here i think discovery channel originally was backing some of that here in the u.s uh-huh. but you know where we combined mountain biking road biking uh whitewater kayaking flatwater kayaking orienteering rope work and it would be a multi a multi-day event and so I'm- you would run you know at an extreme level, I think the raid, the raid Gouloir is the the biggest race that most people know in the multi-sport world. So I did quite a bit of multi-sport racing, but then um, after sort of having you know, my injury and trying to figure out how to solve it, I, I was like, geez, you know, I'd start talking to other people and they're like, oh yeah, I have this problem and I have that problem and I'm not getting it solved. And so foolishly, I decided to take that on um, and it just became a rabbit I'll say a rabbit warren, but we'll call it a rabbit hole because we're in America. Um, yeah, what's you know, a warren? A warren like is a, a place where, yeah, it's a rab- where rabbits live. It's like a the, den? Yeah, underground structure of multiple different um, tunnels, which is where rabbits live. Okay. Um, okay. So it's got a war. It's got a warren. Cool. Uh, <laughs> okay. And and so when you go, when you, you know, it's like going down the hole. It's not. It's not a straight line. Every time you go down, there's like all these forks in the in the road where you know uh you go oh okay i understand say you know as a coach i understand physiology well if i understand physiology i better understand anatomy and if i understand anatomy i better have a really good understand if i want to understand anatomy i better have a really good understanding of physics we went down this one you know you go down this one road and there's multiple different avenues off the road if you like and so understanding physiology and then anatomy and then you know if you understand anatomy you've got to have a really good understanding of physics um, and how, you know, because the one thing which is the constant, it's not our anatomy, even though we're all more similar than we'd like to think. The one constant is physics or gravity. It affects you in exactly the same way as it affects me. Obviously, mass mm-hmm. becomes part of that equation and levers become part of that equation, but it is a constant. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'm like, oh, I better understand. Uh, I better understand respiration i better understand you know uh, foot mechanics i better understand you know all the the strength side of things there was just so many different avenues that i started going down Mm -hmm. uh but i think from a coaching standpoint having the more holistic understanding is infinitely more valuable Mm. than yeah I, i i find it i guess because i'm getting old and grumpy that you know i find everybody's a coach these days right there's popping up everybody, especially in these times, it's become a very fashionable thing because you can do it from home and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's certainly groups of coaches out there who have made career long commitments to being a coach. And you understand Colby, you know, just the, the commitment that takes. Mm. And, and uh, you know, it, I think people just being coaches or just writing training programs. That's what I'd sort of describe it as people just writing, writing training programs, unless you have a, a, a really holistic understanding of the human body and the sport and everything that goes with it. I, I, I don't know if you can call yourself a coach. Maybe some I of it comes that, down to semantics and terminology, right? Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, we could say 
that a coach is someone who really looks holistically at the athlete and considers all aspects of load in the sense that all stress summates. So mm -hmm. we're not, it doesn't matter if we're talking about TSS or, you know, the super hard climb you just went up or the fact that you rode with your friends and they pushed you harder than ever, or we're talking about the fight with your wife or the fact yeah. that you ate a uh, dinner last night that really was far less than ideal. And that's challenging your digestion. You've got some inflammation and phlegm and all the things you're dealing with, you know, just as a few examples, or when your dog wakes you up super early in the morning, like I got that gift this morning. <laughs> so all this stress adds to our lives. And, and so a true coach, I would argue, is someone who looks at the athlete from that macro lens, that 50,000 foot view, and then can also zoom into the details. Sure. Per perhaps I might submit that a better definition for someone who's writing only train training programs is a trainer, not a coach. Yeah. Because they're looking at a narrow slice of life and that can have that can obviously have benefit for someone who just wants advice on how to ride their bikes and maybe needs programming ideas and concepts and ideas of flow within a week or a month or to build to a program. But of course, you have to limit, recognize the limitations of that model. When you work with someone who is really just a trainer and they're writing you workouts, they're not going to be able to effectively integrate those workouts into your, your total life load. And to really have the magic happen, there's got to be some of that. But just to comment on what you said a moment ago about kind of realizing what the responsibilities or the workload of a coach is, or I, I'm not phrasing it the way you did, but I'm constantly reminded of how detailed coaching is and how much my clients need from me and how much I can give them. Yeah. Uh, but man, it just, that, that flow of energy information from me to my client, it constantly amazes me because they need from me and then I look within my own well and I just, as long as I'm plugged into the gratitude of helping other people and working with them, that reservoir never dies, it never shrinks, it just grows actually. But watching that exchange is powerful. Well, also I think, you know, as a, as a career long coach and someone who's been at the game a long time, we just tend to forget how much knowledge we've actually amassed. Yes. And you just sort of take it as commonplace. It's really funny. A few years back, I was up at uh, OTC and they were, we were reserting our skills certification. And, you know, I'm really big on the development of skills in cycling mm. because I think, you know, we've fallen into this. Uh, you touched on it on one of your previous episodes. You know, indoor training is producing lots of strong cyclists, but it's producing lots of bad cyclists. Right. Because everybody's just focusing on on developing the engine yep. and in developing these huge engines. They're overlooking the fact that they've got uneven tire pressure, bad suspension, and the chassis is out of alignment. Yes. And so that's great if you're going in a straight line by yourself, but if you have to turn corners or interact with other people, that's the detriment of, you know, what's happening right now we mm. see that play out in the roads and you know anytime you go out on your bike mm. agreed so so i think you know just looking at this well of knowledge yeah as a coach you have to almost you know i know i'm guilty of this i'm very good at giving really long answers to very simple short questions <laughs> because it's like whoa yeah it's that depends almost how, every how answer really is when it gets down right. to right how deep do you want to go into this? You yeah. just, cause there's, cause this affects this. And it's, it's that whole discussion. If we talk about bike fitting, mm. you know, people are like, Oh, crank length. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, tibial length and crank length and torso angle all play into, you know, closed hip angle and you move any one of them and it's moving everything. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so people are like, oh, okay, you know, so it's not such a complex, but because we deal with it, you know, every day, it becomes just commonplace for us. And so going back to that, I was certifying skills and one of the guys who was, I can't even remember who was the certifying instructor. And he's basically said to somebody else, he said, see what Greg's doing? And I'm like, well, what am I doing? Because yeah. <laughs> right. you, you don't, you know, you just take it for granted. Yes. That, that there's just, this, you have this well of knowledge, which is actually really deep, deeper than you actually remember. And, and that it just, you just, you know, instinctive knowledge and you're like, oh yeah, yeah I heard about, I read once about that study or I've got to find that paper or whatever. Mm. So you can't expect, it's a difficult situation to get into, unload your career long knowledge onto somebody who may have a chronological age in their thirties, forties or fifties, but their cycling age is like a junior. Yes. Yes, they've been in the sport two, three, four years, and they're early in the right. child child phase to use Paul Check's right. model, or maybe mm-hmm. they're just beginning the warrior phase. Yeah, great point. I've run into that barrier several times, and this podcast has been an exercise in that, I would say, and that's why I love doing it because it helps constantly refine my own language, my own methods of teaching, my own cues, which are so crucial, right? When you're working with people, it's like that old game of telephone. You know, I say one thing, and then by the time it gets to the third, fourth person, it's become warped. Well, that can even happen from me to my client directly face to face, where I'm trying to communicate one concept principle, give them a cue and how I want them to move their body, how I want them to sit with a different posture. And the cues become so critical and that the barrier can become sometimes an obstruction to that learning or that communication, that flow of energy and information, because, and this isn't to blow sunshine out my own skirt, you know, like we said, I've been in the sport for 35 years. I've been coaching for, I don't know, who's counting? I don't know, I guess 15-ish. Right. And then fitting for, uh, you know, about a decade. So I know a lot of things that said very humbly, there's so many things I don't know, but it's really easy for me to talk on a PhD level, I'll say just illustratively, to someone who's in sixth grade. And when I'm doing that, I have to be very careful to outline basic concepts and bring them back to give them context because otherwise it's really easy for me to talk for an hour and give them a lot of good stuff but doesn't actually teach them anything because it's too many levels down the road it'd be the same as if you and i went and took a new class on whatever any topic we don't know about you know um something random like uh advanced cooking you know pretending that you and i didn't know anything about cooking and we went and took a a class from a world-renowned chef and he was teaching us advanced techniques on the intricacies of filleting the most perfect piece of fish ever. And we were like, wait, I don't understand. How do I turn the stove on? So it wouldn't yeah, be, right. it would, it's, it's something that I'm constantly refining and learning. How do I communicate with my clients in a way that's constructive for them, gives them some of my expertise, but I have to not dumb it down. That's not the right way to think about it, but more distill it to the most effective and simple message that still conveys the higher end principles. And then we fill in the details as they grow and as we are, our relationship expands, right? Is that a good way to think about it? That's a fantastic. I, I use that as, you know, I live now in the city of chefs. There's more world-class chefs yes. in this town than just about anywhere else. And, you know, some of them are my clients. I'm very lucky. Um, and so we get to talk food. Mm-hmm. And I say to them, you know, if you want to tour, win the Tour de France, there's a book published by a guy who won it seven times. You can just look at how he did it. 
and you can follow that menu, you know? And in the same way that I can go down and buy a, a book written by Gordon Ramsay or Wolfgang Puck or whatever, but yep. my, my end products never taste as good as his. Even though I followed the plan, you know, yeah, cooking it's it's very well measured yes and and it, so it just doesn't work that way you know yeah we can't distill it to where your understanding is a lot of the time and and i think certainly cycling falls into that a lot with coaching and with fitting as well as people go oh i understand this part of it and they try to apply it and you know yes next thing you know as i say to a lot of people i said i you know i don't expect everybody to come to me to get fit but at some point you're probably going to have an issue where you're going to require my level of expertise mm -hmm. and you, and so and when and when you're ready i'm here to help over a long enough timeline yeah you keep practicing the sport eventually yeah right. yeah uh i mean that's kind of steve's one of his biggest impressions he left upon me is his first his first and only rule about bike fitting is there are no rules in bike fitting meaning <laughs> he'll true. have seven clients come through the door where he sees some sort of correlatory trend you know like if this then that if they are suffering from this particular affliction you know whatever pain right. under the left scapula then he in with these seven clients in a row he applies this method and it works to air quotes fix them help them mm -hmm. ride pain free or or fix their alignment or whatever and then the second he's about to write us all an email and say hey guys i've figured out this correlation he'll have seven more clients that come through the door and completely yeah. break that paradigm and well, that's, your, that's your causation correlation issue. yes yes exactly and that's the lesson he learned he's beaten into our heads is there is mm -hmm. no the, the human body is too infinitely complex you're solving the fractal there are too many outcomes to apply those rules it doesn't mean we don't yeah. see trends it doesn't mean we don't yeah. see patterns of course we do in human movement but the little manifestations and the outcomes of those patterns we see similar patterns but i see right hip drop all the time in my fit studio but how many different outcomes do you have from chronic knee pain to it band pain to you know, hip right. pain to lower back pain to upper back pain to hand numbness. And, and that comes back to the model, I think, you know, and my approach to dealing with all that stuff is um, the U.S. has perfected the trauma treatment model in medicine, right. basically from basically being at war for a long time. Mm. And that all comes out of the military and they're really good. You got a hole in you, you know. Um, <laughs> we'll stitch you know, it up. It, it, yeah, exactly. And it's, it's what I call the vanilla ice syndrome, you know, if you've got a problem, I can solve it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, but that model doesn't work with chronic injury. So the chronic injury model and the traumatic injury model, the site of the pain is always the source of the pain. Yes. But in the chronic treatment model, the site of the pain is seldom the source of the pain. Yes. And, it, and you know, to, to quote um, Shirley Sharman, it's, it's like when one thing moves, everything moves. Mm -hmm. I think it was her. It might've been Thomas Myers. Anyway, <laughs> they probably but, both said it several times, right? Yeah, exactly. It's one of those things we just say because it's true, right? It's the old thing. I always laugh with people. You know, the hip bones connected to the knee bone mm -hmm. um, and the knee bones connected to the, yeah, that's the way we work. And that, and that's that um, 10 segrity model, right? Yes. That, so we, we just see it manifest in it so many different ways. And that's the uniqueness of a human. I think that's what's one of the things when I sort of diverged away from pure, what I would call pure bike fitting or living in that bike fitting world. And I started seeking out all these other professionals in different fields, like, like you have as well. And this is the parallels of both our careers as bike fitters mm -hmm. is you start to go, Oh, okay. So 
like my examples, I deal with a lot of, say, triathletes, and we're and constantly seeing shoulder issues. And I'm like, yeah, well, I've also worked with a whole lot of baseball players. And ironically, we see the same issues with baseball players. We just see similar issues with tennis players, mm-hmm. you know, what we class as an overhead athlete. Mm-hmm. And, and you realize that, you know, 206 bones, we've got origin insertion in very, almost, you know, very similar places for everybody. We, we have more in common than we have you know, separating us, um, that it's not about the bike. It's about the human. And I can affect immediate changes on a bicycle, but humans just don't. Humans have sometimes immediate adaptations, sometimes non-immediate adaptations. And so it's that process of understanding that, you know, the bicycle thing is really unique because you're taking an asymmetrical mechanism and trying to strap it to a symmetrical mechanism Mm -hmm. and and herein lies all your little manifestations of you know the slightest shift in certain things can affect people in different ways i think that's a really important point um this is a classic example of just enough information to shoot people have people shoot themselves in the foot especially (laughs) recently with the proliferation of left right power meters or what's even more muddied water is the power meters that display left and right information but aren't truly measuring left and right they're just modeling it which is sure i'm just gonna spoil the plot for everyone that that is useless (laughs) data best case scenario it kind of gives you some maybe vague sniff of what's going on but the vast majority of the time it'll lead you down the wrong road and I won't unpack that now and get into that in a future episode, but just take my word for it. Just stop looking yeah. at that. But dude, I, I say it to people all the time and they go, oh, I'm thinking about getting a dual sided power meter. I'm like, cool. So what, what can you see with that? And they're right. like, I can see power on my left and my right. I'm like, okay. And what are you looking for? And they're like, oh, an imbalance. I'm like, okay, yes. when you find the imbalance, what are you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? And oh, they're like, push uh, harder on the knot. Yeah, I push harder on my left leg. I'm like, yeah, autonomic movement versus conscious thought movement, motor cortex versus central pattern generator. <laughs> right, I'm like, you want right. to play that game? <laughs> but they don't. Yes, right, exactly. How do you reprogram your movement engrams, which I do, I, I believe is possible, and I coach people to do it, but I think we have to very carefully use the right tools and educate the client about how that sure. might happen. So. Sure. But that's a that's a long road. People, most people can't go out and impact change in one or two or even six months of riding in their pedal stroke long term. It doesn't mean it can't be done. Yeah, but, I mean your your episode about the pedal stroke, mm. um, how to pedal a bicycle. You know, that's a great example of man. It, it doesn't happen. It's we just can't affect change. I mean, yeah, we can dive deep into myelination of <laughs> you know and, and movement patterns and just yeah. you know you can't you can't demyelinate unless you get a neurological disease right so you know right. how, how do you un- that's why those habits are so hard to change but yeah. and you know don't don't even start me on the on the pulling up which you t- oh. you know which you yeah i know it's dude i yeah. it's a that's a constant battle so <laughs> yeah so it's it's how do we tailor our information to a point where the the client is going to absorb it right um and where it's applicable that's it's always a practice of boiling down to what's practical and applicable because I can mm-hmm. give someone two hours or four. I could talk for nine hours with every client about <laughs> hypotheticals and philosophy of how to generate power right. on a bike and postural considerations and stuff. But until I give them something that's actually practical, practical, actionable, actionable yeah. in a real yeah. world situation, 
they're just going to go out the door and think about stuff and then forget about it and go on their next hard group ride. And that's not constructive as a fitter. It's, you know, that balance between bringing the ethereal philosophical stuff into practical application. And for me, that comes down to, I've got a few drills that I do, including my dead leg drills that I talk about in my how to pedal a bike episodes. And, um, also simple, really simple stuff like having people use a simple closet dowel when they're doing their four point tummy vacuum exercises on all fours and having them restore spinal, po- spinal posture and right. l- work on diaphragmatic breathing. But then also we can use that same dowel down their undershirt on the bike to bring them postural consciousness. You know, how right. much spinal flexion are you in? Where is that point of acute spinal flexion that we want to perhaps try to optimize a little bit or avoid because whenever you've got chronic flexion focused on one or two vertebrae, you're just asking for problems, neurological problems, physical, mechanical problems, you name it. Plus you're shutting off the nervous system signal that should be ideally passing through that happy highway from the brain down to the lower extremities. Right. So, yeah, I think so. You and I could spin our propellers on our little hats all day long. And this totally, one, you know, it's like, totally. <laughs> it's like yeah. once again, yeah, we could sit around and talk about it for a day. Right, right. Agreed, um, which would be super cool. So maybe yeah. maybe this uh-huh. August, if you're around, I'll stop by in Vegas on my next trip out to the Czech Academy and totally. go for a bike ride and uh, dork out. Dude, for... you, are, you are always welcome to come oh, down thanks. here. We, uh, thanks. Yeah, I've got a room here at the house. We're oh, already amazing. made up. The All right. Awesome. Awesome. So we went so around a big circle. We went around <laughs> a big circle there and I think I had another point to make about left right power meters which was simply that we have just enough information on the market now for riders to potentially shoot themselves in the foot meaning yeah. you know they they start to dig down this hole and they start to see oh I've got this imbalance in my power meter you know left right and whether or not that number is accurate is one thing or really represents what you think it does and we have to be very discerning about that so also plot spoiler if you really want to dig into light right left power and you think you're going to make a difference get a unit that's got enough resolution to see data in actual in a pie chart you can see which is like a pioneer I think Rotor yeah. might have some software now on their latest power meter. SRM I don't know. SRM has it in their lab unit. They do. Um, but SRM is still modeled left, right, unless you're talking about the new pedals. But anyway, it gets quite nuanced, the, the level of – that's why you have to use a Pioneer head unit to get all that data. Yeah. It's yeah. the mass, The amount of data beyond a normal power meter is astounding. And then you have to have software to analyze that data and look at it and say, am I really pushing you know, with less force – from 12 to one o'clock on the right, then I am on the left, for example. And how am I going to correct that? Well, what muscle am right. I? And you could go on a fact-finding mission to try to figure that out. However, I would suggest that before you go chasing that rock, looking under that rock to improve your performance and try to make yourself a perfectly symmetrical machine, understand, first of all, that all humans are asymmetrical, as you mentioned, Greg, mm-hmm. and they also move asymmetrically. I mean, if you're right-handed, how many times right. have you taking your car keys and stuck them in the keyhole and turn the car on or open your back door to your house right. to go home. Well, now you've done that tens of thousands of times, maybe more depending on how long you've been alive. And we could do that almost automatically with our eyes closed. That's a movement engram and it's asymmetrical. Right. We move sure. asymmetrically in our lives on a daily basis. I mean, do you use both hands to wipe your butt every other day? Most people right. don't. So it's like we all do these things regularly. 
asymmetrically, why do you suddenly expect to ride a bicycle with perfect symmetry in your lower extremities and drive the power? It's not a, it's not a realistic thing. Also consider that mechanically, you know, we've got a liver. That's a pretty big organ. And in bike riders, it tends to be swollen up with glycogen if you've been eating enough carbs. Right. If you're on the keto diet and chronically depriving yourself of a, an essential fuel to go fast, different story. So we've got this liver that's engorged with carbohydrates, which means by definition, since for every molecule of carb, you got to store four molecules of water. Yeah. So that's this big puffed up bag of water and carbs that you're going to use on every ride. And, and that's not centered. It's on one side of your body. We have more yeah. lobes of lung on one side than we do on the other. Bodies are not symmetrical. So it's un, it's, I'm not saying it's not a goal to make symmetrical power, but give yourself a break, I guess is what I'm saying. Understand yeah. the context of the landscape you're trying to negotiate. When it comes back to, you know, circle back to low-hanging fruit, mm -hmm. right? I can guarantee you that, you know, if you, you can spend all that time, it's a fun analysis, and that's that mathematically, mechanically driven mind which seems to be attracted to cycling. That engineer mind, right? Engineer mind, yeah. yeah. And, but, but all the time you spend doing that, you can't have addition without subtraction. So all the time you spend doing that, you're not doing something else and, and possibly going back to the more low hanging fruit are, is going to give you better results and better, you know, return on investment over a, a longer period of time. Mm. Cause, but we, we human nature is we want to get to the sexy stuff quickly. Of course. You know? Show me the, I've got a great, I get to tell a story every now and then as a, as, as a, I had a, a high-level uh, Taekwondo uh, practitioner come to see me who was trying to make the U.S. Olympic team. And he came to see me for my movement stuff. And because, you know, I'm not just about cycling, I work with human movement. And he's like, so I, you know, run all my screens on him. I'm like, okay, I can see where you're not doing so well. And let's put you through some, I'll design some training for you and we'll, you know, get you improving. So about six weeks later, we're walking out of the facility. I'm like, so how are we doing? He goes, dude, it's just so good. I'm so much more balanced. My, my kicks are higher and snappier, you know, on roundhouses. I'm, I'm just super, super smooth. Mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh, that's, that's fantastic. He goes, well, but I've got to ask you, Greg, when are we going to get to the really awesome stuff? <laughs> and, and I, there was actually my receptionist was sitting at the, at the desk and she looked at me as we walked out and I went, dude, when you get really awesome. <laughs> nice. And, and the, you know, the fact being, he was already, you know, what we would consider really awesome. He was trying to make the U S Olympic Taekwondo team. Mm -hmm. He was already an, a black belt sensei with his own dojo. Wow. But there was still room for him to, you know, there's still room for improvement because that's, you know, to jump off onto something else. That's just what we see all the time. And a lot of high level athletes is that high level compensation strategy where they are good or professional in spite of themselves mm. not because of some you know yeah some sort of you know magic wand or some special you know not because of the five greatest training tips they have the five ways to create more power not because they um, worked with mr miyagi their whole career right right yeah. and so you know so there's lots of yeah there's just so much to it and i think that these days the more people who go back to do the fundamentals mm -hmm. and take care of the fundamentals the, their performance will increase just because they have a better foundational base of be it movement or aerobic capacity or strength or whatever it is mm -hmm.
Yeah, I love that statement you made. You can't have addition without subtraction. That's a yeah. great way to think about things. And really that comes down to an athlete being discerning about applying their time and energy towards activities that are really going to have bigger impact as opposed to focusing on dorky details or yeah. or shiny things that maybe yeah. might be cool to think about but really won't make that big of a difference, a global impact on their performance. And I, as a competitive athlete for so many years, I've definitely learned that lesson. There are times where I was so focused on, you know, whether or not I was eating organic walnuts or not. Right. And right. it just didn't matter at the time. It was like, I, and it took me a long time to start to distill that and figure it out. And hopefully that's where I can pass on a lot of useful lessons to my clients. And yeah, it's just taking out bandwidth and we all have a limited amount yes. of bandwidth. Yes, of course. Of course. And as a fitter, so that, that brings me to a great point. As far as fitting goes, you know, I've been through uh, two levels of IMS in the Czech program, which is uh, Integrated Movement Specialist. And mm -hmm. that used to be called, that of course used to be called something else, but, and I'm down to HLC3 now. I'm in the Czech Academy. So basically that means that they spoon feed me everything that they've ever, every course they've ever produced over a period of, it's supposed to be seven years, but I've been kind of hitting the gas on that. So it's gonna be a lot less for me, but um, amazing program. Czech is a polarizing personality, I'll say. <laughs> Not sure. everyone can deal with Czech, with Paul and his, he's got a very military intense side, but he's an amazing yeah. teacher. And now he's, you know, just to make a point briefly on our conversation about how, you know, when you've been doing something for a long time, you can kind of become almost too far removed from the beginner mind to be effective. I mean, Paul's already forgotten more stuff than I've learned yeah, as far as sure. human movement, for sure. Uh, so that whenever you're in his presence, you're just taking in everything you can and sponging as much as possible, which is great. But that said, you know, working on IMS one and two now, I think we're up to something like 64 different assessments I can make of a client just in their system alone. Right. And this is more focused on things like standing posturalist analysis, uh, you know, joint angles, you know, looking at range of motion for hip abduction and adduction and how much spinal rotation someone has in the thoracic spine. And it's just teaching us ways to potentially quantify those things. Mm -hmm. And I'm not particularly drawn to those types of screens per se. I think some of them have usefulness or utility for me in a fitting session. But the point I'm trying to get at is if I took everything I know from Czech and all the FMS stuff I've learned and some other random things that I've accrued and things that I've learned from Steve Hogg, I could spend literally five hours assessing a client before I even put them on the bike or moved a cleat. Yeah, 100%. And obviously that's not constructive. Everyone has limited time and energy and information. When I listened to your interview with Damon on the Bike Fit podcast, which was a really excellent interview, by the way. I want to put a link to that in the show Thank notes because I think people will really appreciate that. Um, I thought you mentioned in there a bit about how much screening you do with an athlete and how you work with them. And, and I love the fact that I think you said there in your interview that a typical fit for you is around two and a half, three hours. Is that accurate? Correct. That's correct. Yeah. And I heard some other fitters on Damon's show say stuff like, oh, if you're working with a client for more than an hour and a half, you're losing them. And to me, that was like, wow, an hour and a half is a drop in the bucket. Now I understand there's a, there's a balance, but I just, I'll, I'll just say, I really did not agree with that perspective. And that works for them. They're serving clients. Maybe they're way better at distilling what matters than I am. I, I recognize that's a possibility. <laughs> I, I, I doubt that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So we're all here to learn what we're here to learn, right? So, but my, okay, so my long, very long one question is, Greg, you know, how do you distill uh, your intake for a client? How do you work with them? Do you send them questions before you do a fit session? What does that questionnaire look like? And then when you see them in person, how do you start to get a feel for how a human moves? I know you've mentioned working with the FMS, if you wouldn't mind walking our listeners Mm -hmm. a little bit through that and how that works. Okay, so um, let me jump some jump around on that. So going back to your first comment, absolutely, you've learned so much. Everybody is well. If you you know as much geeky as we are about this, you seek out all these different screens to give yourself a better understanding, and then you could spend. Yeah, I could spend a whole day with somebody, and I will if they're willing to pay the price. If they're willing to pay the dollars, I will spend a whole day with you. But I don't think there's so much information gets circulated that it's very difficult for people to absorb it and it's all it's also difficult for us to almost keep track of it because i'm like did i talk about that and you know that's the process of our minds but um i think the I, i think the process is taking what you know and using what is necessary to fit that environment because you you brought up a really interesting port, point i'm having a discussion with a group right now who are trying to provide a service uh and we want to provide the the best service for them they can they create the best service for them they can and the question is how much physical assessment do we put in to that service and the, the issue is if you do, I need to do physical assessment. And if there's a lot of time where I don't need to do physical assessment, but, it, but, it, uh, it quantifies or qualifies, you know, so it qualifies what I think I'm seeing. So yep. it's like, ah, oh, cause you've, you, when you've got a lot of experience and you're used to seeing so many reps, you're like, you know, going back to people who influenced me, Mike Boyle out in Boston was a big influence on me on strength training. Okay. Um, and Mike's got this great, you know, statement as only Mike from Boston can say, he goes, if, if it looks like shit, it's probably shit. <laughs> if it looks like a duck and qu- quacks like a duck. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, so you can see that in, in movement, if you're used to watching human movement, Yep. And it doesn't look right. It's probably not right. And so then we have the job of distilling why is it not right? Right. Trying to figure out what that root cause is. Yes. But that doesn't fit for everybody. For some people, if we just take it to like riding a bike, some people don't want to spend three and a half hours with me or three hours with me, two and a half hours, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, they just want to get out and ride their bike. And so, but they will still benefit from my expertise. So from a, from a service standpoint, I've got, I basically have three main service levels when we're talking about bike fit. I have what I refer to as a basic bike fit, a functional bike fit, and a comprehensive bike fit. The mm-hmm. comprehensive bike fit is basically reserved for triathletes mm-hmm. because my comprehensive bike fit, I take a lot more, I take a closer look at their mechanics as they relate to running off the bike, which is somewhat important in triathlon and mm-hmm. in, in cycling i take a look at their mechanics as they uh, apply to riding the bicycle and those two things are different you know the way we run just because of triple extension and non-extension and cycling um but there's some 
some common functionality or common fundamentals to both those processes. Right. And then I had the basic bike bit, which is I just want to look at contact points and, you know, alignment. And you can do that pretty quickly. Um, you know, you, you've probably done it. You're out in a group ride and somebody's like, you know, um, riding along. Hey, Colby, I've got this. My knee's hurting me. And you go, let me ride behind you. Let me look at you. Okay, if you do this, you know, there's a quick fix. You can give them a 30-second or 60-second assessment right. and a most likely path to Exactly. To and you yeah. just... And, and, and as you know, as a, as a fitter and a business owner, Hey, if you continue to have problems, come and see me and we can book you in for an appointment. Right. Right. That's the process. You're giving back to the community in the same way it probably happened to you when you were a junior Mm -hmm. happened to me when I was a junior, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of helpful people out there. Yep. So there's that process of, you know, depending on creating, using your expertise and what we talked about before, distilling it down to fit the audience. Mm Mm-hmm. So back to you know my process is um, I do have a pre questionnaire which I send out to people. It basically talks about you know some of it is what their expectations are mm-hmm. for why why are they coming to see me, mm-hmm. um, what issues are they having, what um, on the bike. I tend to try and this is just my workflow. I tend to try and reserve a lot of the questioning until they're present. Mm-hmm. And the reason being, I don't want anything to influence what I think I'm seeing. Uh-huh. Interesting. So when somebody, when somebody comes in, my first process is, okay, let's take you through the basic morphological stuff. We'll get your height. We'll get your sternal notch. We'll get your inseam. We'll get your wingspan, shoulder width, hip width. Those are, you know, the morphological measurements. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you and take those we'll, as part of their intake. Yeah, sure. And there's the yeah. purpose for that just to see how they fall relative to the bell curve in terms of the Correct. basic. That's exactly that's that's exactly what it's for. Okay. I just like to I like to mine that data and uh-huh. see, you know, what am I starting to see here? Because one day I'm really hoping some bike manufacturer, or shoe manufacturer, hears that I'm a person, and thinks <laughs> that I might have something valuable to contribute because I see a lot of bad product out there. <laughs> that's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> Aho, agreed. Okay. But then, so then when we've done that, I basically take them to uh, an unweighted assessment mm-hmm. and look at ROM, the basics of hip mobility, internal external rotation, hip flexion, hip extension, mm-hmm. uh, pelvic obliquity or pelvic alignment, both weighted and unweighted. Uh, and and then I, I, I'm lucky enough to have a force plate in my studio. Oh, nice. That's I, a great tool. I, yeah, I use my force plate to basically validate what I think I'm seeing as well. It's just a triangulation point, but it's also a really great visual aid for a, a client to sort of, I'm like, here, you can see in these four quadrants how your you know, left posterior loading 57% of your body weight, left posterior. Hmm. And that might explain you know, what I think I'm seeing. But I take all that, and then I look at their feet, and you know I'm a big foot guy. I was really lucky to... Um, you know, I'll say blessed and not that I'm a man of the cloth, but um, I was really lucky blessed to be able to study with Bill Pedersen before he passed away. Ah. Um, so Bill passed on a huge amount of knowledge to me. I was lucky enough to be able to go down and work with him in Tucson. And oh. then he came to, he, he was able to come to Vegas and we spent quite a bit of time together, very close to his passing. Okay. And he was, he was like, I just got to teach you as much as I can because I'm not going to be around much longer. Now, did he pass away from an illness? Did he? Yeah, have... lung cancer. Lo- okay. 
yeah, no, not surprising if you've ever worked in a in an orthotics lab. Man, um, so many grinding, professions, grinding right? and and yeah, fine all that particulate matter. Yeah. yeah, fine particulate matter, nasty yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, but so I'm a big foot guy. So then I go into a pretty good foot assessment, and we're looking at you know medial lateral, calcaneal alignment, first met, all the you know the critical stuff. I and mean, you and I can have a whole discussion about that. Mm-hmm. Because how your foot works inside the cycling shoe is not how your foot works when you're walking and running. Um, oh, I've got so much to say on this. Okay, please continue. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and so once I've done all that assessment, then I'll talk to the client about, tell me your history. Mm. Tell me broken bones. Tell me soft tissue injuries. Tell me orthopedic vention. Yep. Tell me you know, um, training, what do you do? You know, oh, I do strength work. Like, what does strength work look like to you? Yes. You know? Oh, I, well, I do just the normal stuff. I'm like, so explain that to me because that environment really impacts their movement. You, know, you said how many times have you turned the key you know, in your car <laughs> clockwise, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Those things all add up. Um, right. And so once I've got all that, then we actually move to the bike. So, so then we're dealing with pretty much by the time we get to putting somebody, I, I get to putting somebody on the bike. I know exactly how they're going to move on the bike because it's a symmetrical apparatus. Right, right. Uh, and it's just, it's just like, okay, I put them on the bike and I'm like, yep, okay, here's what we have to do. And people are usually, I don't know whether they're shocked or unimpressed or whatever. By the time we get to the bike, how little work I have to do. <laughs> That's Because I know where I'm. I know, you know where I'm going. You already have I'm such like, a clear picture of the athlete. Exactly. It's yeah. like bang, bang, bang. And and also lots of my clients know that, you know, many people have walked in the door to my studio with their brand new bike they just bought, let's say consumer direct. And and I'm like, gee, I, I hope you're within the return period still. Right. Right? Send send it back. And better, they're like, what? A better frame is going to be a different size right. or a different geometry because we can't get your bars Correct. high enough on this or Exactly. So it's yeah. all that sort of stuff. So, you know, but like anybody, I would love to be in a financial shit situation where I didn't have to manage my time as much as I do. Yeah. Because we, we could, you know, we could sit down, you know, you could get, you know, uh, a, a, we could find a group of fitters and three or four guys work on one athlete, like, you know, That'd be really, really fun, but mm. it's just not cost effective. Right. <laughs> and we've all we've all got to pay our mortgages. Right. And I'm I'm not independently wealthy. You know, I've made more bad financial decisions in my life than I have good ones. Mm. So, um, you know, in my quest for knowledge, I think we would um, maybe run into too many chefs in the kitchen, possibly too, unless it was the perfect blend of fitters in that. Well, that's what it comes down to, because yeah. I think I think in a fit environment. You've got to be, I think that's a, almost a maturity thing. That's got nothing to do with your chronological age. Right. That's just got something to do with where you are in your cycle. Excuse the pun. Um, <laughs> is being able to just check that at the door. Because yes. I think that's your, your best part of those great environments where you get people together and you're just like, you know, I'm, again, to, I'm not married to anything I do. And if you say, if you and I got together, if you came into the studio and I, we showed each other what we did and you went, Oh, okay, well I do it this way. And I'll be like, huh, that's way better than my way. I'm going to steal that. Totally. Right. And it's right. like, I had a physical therapist come in the other day and I was showing him, I was doing some of my assessments and I did one, I did like a modified Thomas test. Mm-hmm. And I guess I've got a, maybe a little unique way of doing it. I don't know why. And he goes, Whoa, that's a cool way of doing a Thomas test. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm going to use that now in the clinic. 
And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So it's, it is that environment. Yeah. You've got to be able to go, oh, okay, it just doesn't, you know. I, I want to do the best way, which gives me the best information, you know, yes. and gives the client the best outcome. Absolutely. It's just a tool. It's a diagnostic. You're getting better right. information. You're helping the client better. We don't need to have right. ego attached to this is my way and that's your way or whatever. Yeah. And, and I think lo- through my career, there's things like, we, you, you, you know, there was a question you, we, we talked about or you posted earlier to me is like over 20 something years of fitting. What are the things that I've learned um, that I believed and I no longer believe? Mm-hmm. And, and that list becomes pretty extensive. Like almost, it's almost embarrassing when I look back at some early fits I probably did and went, oh, damn, I was, you know. But I think I if, a, you're, if you're honest about yourself and you're honest with yourself, that's the inevitable conclusion. You look back at some of your fits you did 10 years ago, whatever, and you go, ooh, I really, okay, there's some really big things I was missing there. That's, yeah, that's been my correct. experience. Totally. And that's part of growing in the profession and being... I think it's also part of honest reflection. Yeah, one hundred percent. And but but it's like, oh, okay. And it's, but I didn't know. We all wish we knew knew then what we know now. Of course. That's, yep. Sort my, of that's the life. That's life. My mother used to say that to me all the time when I was a kid. Oh, if I could be your age, knowing what I know now. Yeah. Exactly. And so. So my my process is no. I don't have any. You know, I have lots of tools in my toolbox. Luckily. Um. But I do not have any secret source. Mm. I'm like, you know, I, I don't, I have some stuff which, or, or maybe I just don't consider it secret source because I do have people come and go, oh, I've never seen anyone do that before. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, you, you're you probably familiar with, remember the, the magnet stuff that Jerry mm-hmm. and Steve are working with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that sort of stuff. That's That's pretty cool. Right. It's secret source. It's something you're not going to use on a regular basis, but it's like, you know, because you you know I studied with Steve, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I went over, stayed with Steve, lived at his, you know, stayed at his house for a week and drank yep. beer with him and <laughs> rode on the back rode on the back of his motorcycle through Sydney. Um, and, and and you know, I've got to give full credit as well to Steve. Steve was one of the guys who did sort of put me on this path of of education and exploring, questioning myself. Yes. Because, you know, you know, my history was, you know, I wrote, I, I guess, you know, we, some people might qualify this. I'm pretty sure I wrote one of the first checks to launch Ratul's business. Hmm. Um, you know, I was up in Boulder seeing Cliffy and he had a box with a whole lot of wires coming out of it in his dad in an office in his dad's garage. Okay. And, and I'd been following him online cause he'd been, talking about this thing called cycle path and how it could do, you know, analysis of angles. And I was at the time exploring the CFX system, uh, for fitting, okay. which was more of a, I guess a morphological based system. Let's call it that, mm-hmm. but very good data behind it. They'd had about three and a half thousand fits. I think the guy's name was like, I think Matthew Pipo, who's a French guy did his PhD on bike fit. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, so he had a ton of data. What's the name of that and system again? Sorry? CFAC, the, you know, the bike brand. Yes, okay. So it was associated to them. I don't know what ended up happening to it, but it was associated to their brand. Mm-hmm. And then I saw, you know, Clifford was coming out with that, that tracking system. And when I saw it, I'm like, wow, this tracking system is going to, you know, quantify what I think I'm seeing and what I think I know. 
Right. So I was like, I was the first adapter and I still have, I would say one of the first commercially produced retool systems ever <laughs> sitting in my garage in a box. <laughs> Wait, um, you don't use it every day? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> not, not so much. So, um, so, okay. so I was using technology and Steve came up to, to Vegas and stayed in my house mm-hmm. and, and we were sort of talking about it and, you know, we're talking about the, the mechanics of bike fit and stuff like that and, and how everything worked and how humans worked. And, mm. and, uh, you know, as you know, Steve, he said something like, ah, oh, you don't need that shit. That's rubbish. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He goes that, you know, you don't, you don't, don't need that shit. Stop being such a wanker and look at it with your eyes. Right. And I was like, uh, okay. And I was like, huh, what I see and what I think I see actually has higher resolution than what this technology is giving me. I think Steve said it in the pod I did with him. We already have the most high resolution camera ever made by man. It's your eyeball. Yeah. Yep. 100%. And, you know, I think, you know, whether it's Steve or whether it's somebody else, it's like, you know, the best tool to analyze a human's movement is another human. Right. With the right skill set, right? That's That's the key right there, though. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 100%. You yeah. know, lots of, lots of people you've got to, you've got to, you know, and again, going back to our silo comment, you've got to know you, you, it's what you think you're seeing and working with other people helps you validate what you think you're seeing or not, or, see, or yeah. not, right. Or see something else. Right. 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 And it's, and it's, I was, you know, working, I'm working on a, a screening system right now with a group and we're talking about, you know, with these really simple three movements, what are the things we're looking for? Right. Mm-hmm. When the, when you see these movements happen, what can you see? We're not looking for a single thing in a single movement. We're looking for multiple things happening in a single movement. Right. So as an example, you know, you go into single leg stance. If I'm looking at you, um, if I'm looking at you in the frontal plane mm-hmm. and just to clarify for you know, the listeners, that's looking straight on. Mm-hmm. Right. If I'm looking fa- facing you and I get you to do a single leg stance, knee lift and bring your thigh up to parallel with the ground. There's just so many things happen in that movement, which are valuable in understanding. Mm-hmm. You put p- people in the sagittal plane, you know, side on, and have them do that same movement, and you see different things. Right, right. But and you have to it, have a list of cues that the the observer is looking at and looking for. How are the hips shifting out of plane? Is there anterior shift right. to one side what of the pelvis. What are you looking for becomes right. the question, right? Right. What are you looking for? Mm-hmm. And and being able to see those those basics movements tell you a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, so you know, it's the mm-hmm. process. I I I don't. Yeah. I, when I talk, when I work with you know, I'm positioning riders on bikes. You know, and and again, back to an earlier comment you'd made in a previous episode. I refer to what I do as rider positioning, not bike fit. Yes. Okay, so mm-hmm. bike fit's just that generic term. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, I'll spin that bike fit term out, uh, which comes from something I say about running, is you can't get fit running because you need to be fit to run. Mm. And I think bike cycling's the same. <laughs> you need to be fit, fit to cycle. To ride to cycle, exactly. Yeah. 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 And. Mm. Well, and I, I think I think that's you know part of the process. Our job, I don't want to, start, you know, lots of people who walk into my studio, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, 
you know, it's, it would be easy to say you need to stop cycling until we resolve these issues, but that, that's not a reality. I just have so, one of these discussions with my athletes, one of my athletes yesterday, actually. He's right. struggling. He's on the struggle bus so hard we're going to give him a break from the bike yeah. for a while because he's got, he's got really big issues. So, right. I, I, yeah, but for most people, that's not realistic. It's on a and, spectrum, right? And I'm There's also – and I'm his coach. Yeah. So it's a right. different relationship than someone who just Correct. hires me for a bike fit. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. As a coach, you're going to have to have those hard conversations. Hey, we need to, we need to take a step backwards to take two steps forwards. Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, I, with a lot of people who come to see me with movement related issues that I'm like, so how long has this been going on? Mm-hmm. And they're like, Oh, about two years now. I'm like, <laughs> okay, so you don't expect me to fix you today. Right. Right. Oh, I have that conversation all the time. You've been, you've been manifesting this injury for, right. for two years. We're not going to fix it in one five hour bikes fit Correct. or even in a two week no. session. No. Like it's, we're talking no. about 24 months of injury. Sure. So even yeah, if we was... resolve the mechanical cause air quotes <laughs> of that true injury, there's still right. an emotional component right. to that injury oh, at this 100%. point. It's been yeah. there for two years. Yeah. Yeah, how can we, how can we, and we've got to back you out of it slowly. Yeah. We can't just stick it in reverse. And <laughs> right. Put up with right. Right. We've just got to roll backwards. So, yeah, yeah. My, I don't think that my process is anything spectacular, revolutionary, whatever. Mm-hmm. I think just the fact that I take a very fundamental analytical approach to it. And, uh, and that's, I, I, I tick the boxes. And one of the, and I like to think of it as a martial art approach is that, I need to, you, you need to display to me mastery before I will let you continue. Mm. Cause I, I can, I could accelerate you to black belt and without the mastery of everything else, you are going to get your ass kicked <laughs> badly, like really badly without working on the fundamentals. So right. that reminds me of a point I wanted to make earlier that I think you might have some good insight on. And that is simply that you know, we started off our conversation talking a bit about how dreadful some people's cycling technique actually is. And a point that I'm constantly making to my clients is that I think cycling is a little bit of a negative wormhole of it kind of spirals you into technique crappiness for a bunch of reasons. But when you think about it logically, other sports are more apt to be self-reinforcing for good technique. What do I mean by that? If you're, if you have atrocious running form, you're going to get injured because it's weight bearing. And that's yeah. probably one reason why so injury rates are so high in running. Now, you can camouflage those injuries by using more and more corrective and padded shoes. And the end result of that is to put on a pair of hokas, which oh, are... I was, wondering, I was wondering if you were going to go I going to break there. out the hokas. I have to. <laughs> it's, break out the, get it's, the hoka bashing stick out. Oh, I will. I, I will bash the crap just, out of those I things. Took a client, I just took a client off a pier yesterday. He walked in. He's like, yeah, these are so comfortable. I'm like, they are terrible. Every time you hit them, you slide off the edge of one and you're causing yourself more damage than you're doing good. Absolute train wreck of a shoe. And right. And so let me, let me actually qualify that. So we just don't get sued. Um, (laughs) Fair enough. If, if you've got perfect mechanics, Mm -hmm. then the hokas are nothing but a beautiful soft cloud for you to run on. They are, but But eventually do not have optimal mechanics. Mm. You, uh, you, there is the potential for you to immediately laterally shift on foot strike Mm -hmm. and therefore have a detrimental effect up the kinematic chain. Okay, and Greg, of there the, there's, a quali- there's, a there's a qualifier for you. For all the runners you've ever seen and done an analysis of, how many would you describe as having perfect mechanics? 
a very few. Like out I, 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 what do you call David, David Epstein? And uh, do you know David? No, I don't think so. Nah, he's a he's a sports writer researcher. He wrote the sports gene and stuff like that. Oh, okay. David Epstein and Ross uh, Ross Tucker from South Africa mm-hmm. did a really cool analysis on Usain Bolt's running mechanics at the 2008 Olympics. Uh huh. And it's like that's about as close as perfect to perfect as I've as seen. You can get yep. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it was like. Uh, but nobody else right yeah. and obviously perfect is a term which needs to be used with a time frame around it as well yes because you know perfect for like you know in a track event right perfect perfect for 250 meters is not perfect for the points race correct right <laughs> well you can have perfect for the points race but you can't probably can't have both right. yeah yeah right not in the same athlete so, okay, so running is a sport that re- it's self-corrective to a degree, especially yeah, sure. when you're using minimal footwear. Like if you're running barefoot. Or self, self-limiting to a degree. Self-limiting, yes, because you'll either the system will collapse or you'll right. figure it out. But either way, sure. it kind of slices that, that line. <sighs> Cross-country skiing, if you're skate skiing and yeah. you've got atrocious form, you'll just you fall, fall over constantly. <laughs> That's why I'm. That's why I'm still classicking, mate. <laughs> it, oh, it took me years to get to the point where I could move forward on those things. I was like, they're two slippery sticks on my feet. How do I go forward? <laughs> I remember yelling at Jonathan Vodders when he was trying to teach me how to ski at the age of 18. So, okay, if you've got really bad form as a swimmer, you'll drown. Correct. Right. But you can literally axe chop the pedals to death as a bike racer. You can <laughs> murder them repeatedly, but you're on a $10,000 Trek, you know, super slick time trial bike or tick, pick your brand with integrated cables and disc wheels or, you know, whatever, lightweight wheels and, you know, titanium bolts and all the bits and oversized derailleur pulleys. And you've spent more than most people spend on their cars for this bike. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you can go really fast on a bike like that because bicycles are amazing converters of metabolic energy into mechanical energy. Sure. Sure. So, and and you and I can see horrible technique on a bike from a kilometer away, but yeah. many people can't, or uh, many riders aren't aware of how bad their technique is. And I'll add to this equation: the more you ride indoors, and the more you ride on a trainer that's completely fixed, a trainer's a magnifier for all those bad habits. If sure, you've got that's a why choppy people, pedal get, stroke, that's why people complain about their bike fit on trainers. Uh, uh, right. So bike fitting business is good this year. You know, COVID's been an accelerant and it's either feast or famine. And for bike fitters, it's been an accelerant in the, we're going to give you business way. So I'm gracious for all those moments of learning and opportunity to work with clients and help them out. But when people Mm -hmm. are riding Zwift like maniacs and racing five or six times a week and doing all this intensity, the trainer is a magnifier for all their problems they have on the road. All of a sudden they just, they just get amplified. Sure. And so they go, oh, well, you know, I've been battling this knee injury on and off for years. And then I was home more than ever this year. I didn't want to ride outside or we had lockdown or whatever, you know, depending on their story. And now my knee is so inflamed I can't ride. And unfortunately, it's a really common story. I mean, there's medicine in this experience is how I like to look at it because this helps this person deal with this issue that's been lingering forever. Now it's been forced. The issue's been forced. And we get to go Uh down this learning journey together and... I get to hopefully help them and they get to to learn about themselves and dig inward into their own fractal, right? Right, right. So 
Yeah, it's a, it's just that's the the process that people bicycle riding a bicycle. As I say to a lot of people, is nobody gets bought into my studio on a gurney. Right. Everybody I see is one hundred percent functional. They're mm. riding the bike. Mm. They're, they're not one hundred percent optimal. Right. Big difference. But, yes. Right. Big difference. So our goal is to find that that transition between functional and optimal. Increase. But it's the, it's kind of the reason why. <laughs> I, I like to say this to myself. The reason why people don't like to ride with me is because I'm always pointing out how bad other people look on the bike. <laughs> it, it might be the fact that I'm an asshole that people don't like to ride with me either, but I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, I'm sticking with the fact that they don't like me pointing things out. Um, but yeah, it's because they're like, I've had people say to me, like, I, every time I ride now, I see the things that you showed me on other people. Yes. He, he said, I, and people say, I can't help but see them. I'm like, yeah, once you've unseen something, you can't unsee something. You can't, once unsee, seen it. you can't unsee some things. It's true. And, and so it's that being able to, again, you don't know what you're seeing until somebody points it out to you. The other day, my wife showed me a video of Jack Black impersonating Thor, the god uh-huh. of thunder, running around in like basically a mankini with a, with a Milnor <laughs> and he's jumping off of cliffs and throwing it around and stuff. And, you know, he's just Jack Black, like in all his glory. And, and then, that was a perfect example of something you can't unsee. Now it's welded right. into my brain, you know. It's a big difference between Chris Hemsworth and Jack Black right. in the Thor outfit. It was really right. funny. I love Jack Black. That guy's hilarious. So can't unsee some stuff. You're right. I mean, at, when I came back from training with Steve, every group ride was like making my eyeballs bleed for a while yeah, afterwards sure. because it just yeah. opened my universe to stuff that I had always observed, but I just didn't understand the implications of it. Now I got okay, right. what does it mean when this person's hips are shifting asymmetrically in every single pedal stroke and I just rode 80 miles with them? What- but also, it's the, the positive I take out of it is it's a great thing to just show how many people need my help. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, from a business standpoint, okay, I've just got to stay in business <laughs> because there's lots of people need my help. I, I mean, Paul says all the time to us, if you guys can't make a living as a wellness coach or a holistic coach right now, you're doing something wrong because there are a lot of broken people on this planet and people need our help. People people don't know they're broken. And we experience this in the cycling community is that, you know, local hotshot who who can do, you know, who's got a 350 threshold or something, Mm -hmm. you know, says, well, no, there's nothing wrong with the way I ride my bike. I smoke you on every hill. Yep. And and I'm like, well, you know, okay, (laughs) let's, let's just, because the big thing is it's, you know, Andy Kogan. It's an aerobic sport, damn oh. it. Oh, Andy. It's, it's killing me know, with it's that about, crap. I love Andy about, Kogan. He's so smart and he's done so much to add to our sport. And he's right. he's such a brilliant mind, but at the same time, he's so myopic in some ways. And the irony of that is that I've trained with Andy and his wife, Angie, on the track. She used to be a yeah. pursuer. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. just unbelievable. Well, it's the whole thing. The, the, I, 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 uh, it's you can't once again his level of intelligence is so far above mine mm. um that it's very difficult for him to talk to me <laughs> right because he when he's talking his normal language i'm just like going huh i don't have a phd in mathematics i, I don't you know i would I, argue I, that you both have you've both got sizable levels of expertise in bubbles or perhaps clouds right, that are in right. the same stratosphere but aren't quite sure. overlapping. There's some overlap, but there's not that much. So there the challenge becomes, you know, having a, a, a discussion where you're able to convey your ideas in a way that 
that translates on both sides and gets the point across. Yep. That's how I would. Yep. The point I was trying to make is Andy, you know, sums it up with it's an efficiency sport. Right. At, at, at most levels, with the exception of, say, Olympic sprinting. But, right. but that's the problem right there, Greg, if I can interrupt. like, yep. Yeah, okay, I see Andy's point, but actually I think he's misrepresenting the sport, and I think on the whole we have this mental construct of what cycling is. And mm. for most people in our universe, that mental construct is the Tour de France. It's <laughs> it's 100-mile road races, 100, 200K road races every day with giant massive climbs and the flats right. days are days where we just survive and don't lose time so sprinters win the stage and kiss the girl and get the flowers yeah. and that's what cycling is but the fact is how many riders do you know that practice the sport that's part of their lives on a daily basis who do that type of racing or riding regularly yeah, right. that's, a, that's a, a ridiculously small subset exactly especially i'll just you know white elephant red herring in the room white elephant in the room like I don't know if you guys know this. You've heard some of my other pods, but road racing is dying in the U.S., man. Oh, dude, yeah. Stage racing is on a massive decline. It's really hard to find road races. So that type of – that sport, we have this archetype in our minds of how that's the sport is supposed to be or that that's the apogee of the sport or the epitome of what cycling is. But the fact is that's not how most people practice it. That's not how most people even have a competitive outlet for it. So mm-hmm. I think that mo- – you're right. I mean, Andy's right. Like, you look at the Tour de France. It is an aerobic sport, damn it. Like, aerobic metabolism dominates your performance in that sport, no doubt. That doesn't right. mean there aren't anaerobic moments, and it also doesn't mean that stages Correct. aren't won from moments where people use their VLA max to cr- achieve separation. <laughs> of course. Right. So he missed that. And I look, this is me fully humbly recognizing, as you said, Andy's an expert in this field. He's a physiologist. I'm not. But I think he missed a really basic point there. How do you win? Yeah, zoom out from a big enough lens. Most of it's aerobic. But how do you win the stages? You do it with anaerobic bursts, of course, in the vast majority of all cases. Occasionally, we have your Alptuez, you know, mano y mano, where somebody rips one guy off the wheel, you know, gains one second per kilometer. Okay, that was, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, and holds it to the line. That was 100% aerobic. Every other race outcome other than a time trial the differentiating factor is FRC. Mm-hmm. It right. is functional anaerobic reserve. power. It's funny. I just got into that discussion with somebody the other day about they're, they're like, no, dude, it's all about threshold. It's all about threshold. Oh. It's like, no, dude, I have a very low threshold, but I have a huge FRC mm-hmm. and I will, and I'm really old and wily and I know how the games play. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I will use my, I will race to my strengths, mm-hmm. you know, because that's all I got. Right. I'm not going to time trial you off my wheel. I'm not a solo. You know, I can't spin. You know, I can't. I can't get in. You know, I can't get in the drops and pin. You know, 320 watts for 30 minutes. Right. Uh, uh, but but man, I, I can still pop some wattage, and I'll get myself to the point where I can use that skill. Mm-hmm. So FRC is the big determinant. How many times can you go above threshold it's and then separator. come back down? Yeah. And and the big thing is like you know you know in bike racing. You don't need to go faster than the peloton. You just need to open a gap and go the same speed as the peloton. Right. <laughs> right. It's the separator. It's the gap maker. Right. That's what FRC how, is. How well yeah. can you, and I think from a coaching standpoint, the biggest mistake most people make is when they try to create that separation, mm-hmm. they go too much into O2 deficit. Yep. And getting out of that O2 deficit hole is very, there's only one way to do it. <laughs> and that's come down below. <laughs> right. Below, right. you know. 
uh, come down below functional threshold to the same amount as you or to a greater amount than you went above to let yourself recover. If their O2 system, their aerobic system isn't capable of consuming that lactate, so you've got to train both. Ultimately, right. you've got to be diverse, train both sides of it, right? 100%. And, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a holistic it's a holistic sport from a training standpoint. Otherwise, you know, we just turn up and everybody hand in their WKO files and they go, oh, you're the winner this week. Right, right. <laughs> thank I, God, thank God we don't do that. Thank God we don't do, well, Swift is trying. Uh, well, yeah, well, they are, exactly, yeah. <laughs> No offense, yeah. Swifters, yeah. but that's, yeah, exactly. I, for me, cycling, you know, as I discussed in my podcast with Jesse Senslin, sport movement is about connection with self internally and with nature externally. And therefore, virtual environments have no interest to me, zero interest. I have absolutely no desire to ride indoors and look at a screen and see artificial trees and other riders' butts implanted, you know, digitally recreated with their... You mean to see a screen which looks like a 1980s video game? Right. I What? No, for me, bikes are all about speed, which means actually when you pedal, the bike moves forward, not isn't locked in place. It's going A to B. It's seeing forests seeing birds, seeing nature. That's the external connection for me, you know, exploring topography, finding trails and roads. I can do that on my feet too. So, and then internally it's about connection with self. It's about connection with movement, finding that range of motion, pushing the limit, feeling the engine be redlined or not just breathing 100% on a ride through my nose and finding rhythm and breath, right? Which goes back to our comment your comment about meditation and connection sure. to breath yeah sure so, cool <laughs> there's a trip around the globe for you um wow, yeah, exactly you just thought for those people who tuned in who thought they were going to hear uh, <laughs> how high your so saddle we, height should be so we don't we digress we digress there's a simple answer to that we can jump over that episode lower yes lower <laughs> right or as you pointed out earlier the difference between running and cycling is running is triple extension cycling Right. Seated cycling is not triple extension. Well, and, and that sort of, you know, goes to the majority of people we see, and you, I'd be interested to hear your experience with this, is the majority of people you see come in and have their saddle too high. Why is that? Yep. Because we spend so much time in hip extension or knee extension. That's mm. what feels normal. So people get on a bicycle and they try to find a point at which they feel closest to their normal which is predominantly walking or, or standing up yep and so when you p- start to put them down you know the biggest comment i have from everybody i position on bike is well i feel super low yes and i'm like yeah that's where you're gonna recruit those glutes and hamstrings and yes use that nice big long lever in the top of your leg and all right drive, yep. drive that pedal down i've got some some hopefully some good video content coming out soon to in one of the ways i figured out to help riders understand why the saddle has to be down and far enough back behind the BB to initiate the power phase at 12. Mm-hmm. And I talk a lot about that in my pod on how to pedal bike, of course, but I found this to be quite instructive. I just use, have them be the brake operator and use an isometric contraction and show them that when the foot is plantar flexed or toe down, they can't apply the power when this, when the power oh. phase starts. And then we talk about how the power phase isn't from three to six, it's from 12 to six. And you've right. got this massive window that you're missing. And so hopefully that content will be up eventually we're we're working on that but these are the kind of things i'd love to dork out with you greg you know in person at some point if we can work together and i can show you these techniques and you can pick them apart or take what is valuable for you and also i'm sure you'd have tons of input but 
I agree with that statement. I think you're probably right. You know, people tend to feel, I almost wonder, I haven't looked into this yet. Maybe you have, but I almost wonder neurologically, it seems like people are really neurologically tuned into the own extension of their hip, probably their knee first and their hip second, because you feel (laughs) distally the contraction of the quads as the knee extends. And there's something about that patellar relationship that's really important, but people are super checked out on how much ankle flexion or extension they have. It's like, they can't feel it at all. And you show it to them in a video and they go, Oh, I I just had this yesterday during a fit. I was like, I had no idea I was that toe down. It feels like I'm super flat footed, but he's riding, you know, yeah, like a ballerina, totally ballet mode, like 30, 40 degrees plantar flexed the entire stroke almost had no clue. So we we saw, and this is one of the things going back to you know, a well-known computer-based fitting software yep. and hardware. Yep. Um, one of the things I saw early on, and that's <clears throat> it's funny, I, I sort of use that as I spent $12,000 to accelerate my education <laughs> by buying a piece of hardware, right? Mm-hmm. I bought a computer program and... Uh, I bought that computer program and the software and it allowed me to see things and uh, quantify how much and qualify what I was already thinking. Yes. Right. And so what we saw initially was as you shifted saddle height. And at the time, I think I I ran a range somewhere near 50 mil and shift. Yep. Um, so for those of the people who live in Syria, Myanmar, or the United States, that's about two inches. Yes, um, in irrelevant units. Thank you. Right, irrelevant units. <laughs> and we saw no shift in knee extension angle at the bottom of the pedal right, stroke. Right, because the body protects right? the knee that Your uses body the ankle. That knee neurological protection of the hamstring extension. Yes. And so then you've got, where are you going to make that up from? Well, initially, you're going to make it up out of plantar flexion, putting your toe down. Right. And or hip internal rotation yes so yeah we saw that it's like Mm -hmm. i'm like huh and and then all of a sudden you'd start to drop the saddle down the knee angle would stay the same but what would happen the foot would start to to flatten out out. and the and the torque curve yes would start to 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 become more normalized didn't have the peaks less punchier yes right less punchy yeah you end up with a higher torque efficiency Mm mm-hmm you end up with a lower moment of torque, mm-hmm. but a higher torque efficiency. Yep. Yep. Which, and, how that translates to the real world is if you're on a climb and you've got a very punchy pedal stroke with a high torque peak, but not a very wide torque, uh, not, not, the torque is not distributed over as many degrees of the stroke, then you're accelerating the bike on every single pedal stroke during right. three and four o'clock. So you're, you're basically becoming less efficient to use Andy Coggins terms because you're using your metabolic energy to accelerate the bike over and over again, instead of keeping the speed constant. Right. And that is the equivalent. If we talk about running of you landing with your center of mass behind your foot. Right. So when you're doing that running, you actually have people who do that, who overstride, they have to decelerate their mass and then re-accelerate their mass to go forward. So it's the, it's the same, uh, efficiency leak leak. Mm Mm-hmm. And and both are, you know both won't last a long distance at a high speed mm. because you know a long time at a high speed. I like to use time. I don't like to use distance. Yeah, because you know people go, oh, I I ride thirty miles every day, and 
ride 30 miles because that's going to give me a better indication of the distance mm -hmm. than the distance will right so yeah there's that whole thing in the mechanics of the, the lower extremity where i people just tend to feel more 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 comfortable more extended uh, and the interesting thing here's here's another thing i've been playing with and i'll be interested to have your thoughts yeah. um i'll be interested to have your thoughts on this something else i've been playing with is the reason why cyclists uh have overdeveloped vmo and lateralis so that's the big muscle over your knee the big apple shaped muscle over your knee and then the one down your side of your leg yep but cyclists don't typically have hypertrophy or growth and rectus femoris the muscle down the middle of your thigh mm -hmm. because we're using this lever the, the drive mechanism of the glutes and the hamstrings and the vmo on the inside of your knee and the lateralis on the outside of your leg are basically stabilizing the femur from side to side motion but because we never reach terminal knee extension mm -hmm. that's where the maximal implication of rectus femoris is ah and and terminal knee extension interesting and so we don't get that hypertrophy of that muscle but if you look at somebody who's say a weightlifter uh -huh. or someone who's just doing knee extension machine at the gym you know that useless piece of equipment right right um they you will get hypertrophy of rectus femoris because you're yep. hitting terminal knee extension all the time yep yep assuming you're working the full range of motion with that well, exactly, worthless yeah. machine right. that <laughs> rips your patella off uh right so it's really interesting, interesting. You'll any look at all those every cyclist you'll see you know yeah. massive yeah. hypertrophy and vmo hypertrophy and lateralis well morris not so much assuming that they are they're trying to stabilize the femur wouldn't you, would you agree that they're basically trying to stabilize the femur from that internal and external rotation on every pedal stroke because their technique is poor because their setup is less so what, what and if are, saddles hot too high that's going to exacerbate all those impacts of course yep Tick, tick, tick all that apply. Yeah. I would say yeah. <laughs> it could be medial collapse. Yep. Yeah. You know, right. So you're going to E version of the rear foot or medial collapse of the arch. Yep. That's going to, you know, so you're fighting that mechanism. If you, if you're not well supported in your cycling shoe and you have that medial collapse, mm. VMO has no choice, but to get in the game yeah. heavily. Yeah. Right. So, or if you're overextended, yeah. uh, if your so saddle's too high, then you're going to get, you know, a rotation or pelvic obliquity occurring. Hmm. Um, and so that's going to, you know, there's just so many, once again, back to our earlier statements, hmm. you know, move one thing and everything moves. Yes, of course. Or so, throw a pebble in a perfectly pool, perfectly still swimming pool. Totally. A single pebble. And over a long enough timeline, every molecule of water in that pool is disturbed by that single pebble. Correct. Same Correct. concept in fitting. Everything's attached. The fascial net runs through everything and around everything, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Don't even, yeah. Let's not go down the fascial route. <laughs> another another pod, perhaps. No. Um, it's like, like what I say to my 11-year-old. Don't trust atoms. They make up everything. <laughs> and then you tell yeah, them all atoms are made of light, by the way, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Fascia is lies somewhere in that spectrum as well. Yes, just to really bake his noodle. Yes. <laughs> so, ah, uh, great, great stuff. So, would you agree with this statement? I think um, when we raise our saddle, most people, uh, since my hypothesis being that we've, we, for some reason, we're really focused on that knee extension or knee angle. When we raise our saddle, it tends to air quotes feel better. Uh, initially, trivially, because 
we we get a little more leverage on that distal quad and that patella. And I'm recycling a bit of some comments I've heard from some other fitters. And so I don't, I haven't quite got my head wrapped around this to be honest. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but it mm-hmm. seems like there, there are several negative spirals of crappiness that can happen in bike fitting where a client will start to self fit and they get farther, farther, farther from the target rather than more towards center. Another good example is when your saddle's too low, um, you would think, oh, well, if the saddle's too low, the rider's going to naturally feel that and they'll push back in the saddle to increase extension. But sometimes yep. what happens when it's too low is they end up working their way forward because they become more quad dominant, which sort of feeds itself into more quad dominance. And then they go, oh, well, I'm sitting really forward on the saddle, so I should bring it under my butt because clearly well, my butt wants to be further forward over the bottom bracket. And then they end up spiraling into this extreme position of saddle forward. So, so you, if you unwrap that, what would cause somebody who was trying to self-diagnose um, to lower their saddle? That, 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 that's, a, that's your question. Mm-hmm. So what might cause somebody to do that is if they were riding a frame which was too big for them. Mm-hmm. So they're dropping the saddle down. Or, or let's not use the frame which was too big for them. Let's say a frame which has too little stack. Yep or too much reach because you're anchored at the hands. Yep. So your functional uh, torso extension or functional thoracic extension, let's call it, um, is just going to try and normalize itself. So you so scoop the butt forward. Correct. You yeah. scoop forward on the saddle or you lower the saddle. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, oh, by lowering the saddle, you basically come further forward over the bottom bracket and you start pedaling in a knee dominant mechanic yep rather than a hip dominant mechanic yep um i mean once again there's so many things we can skin that cockpit length how long are the shifters how what's the reach of the handlebar what's the reach of the stem right um you know an illustration i give people about how precise you know it's, it's funny when we say this bike fitting can be both a game of millimeters and a game of inches yeah right yeah so we can move we, we just because of the nature of cycling you know we move forward on the saddle we move back on the saddle whatever mm-hmm. but if you took say a four foot long dowel and found the two foot mark in the middle you can balance that on your finger you move your finger one millimeter one way and the dowel, the dowel is out of fall. balance yeah right 100%. And the human body, the, going back to an earlier comment I made, the laws of physics affect you exactly the same way as they affect me. Mm. So therefore, we have to really take those laws of physics into account and go, okay, if I move one little thing, I am shifting this mass equation. Yes. And and that's sort of where people end up chasing their tail. And typically, you know, you've had it, I've had it, most fitters have had it. Someone's like, oh, I've been playing with my position for the last six months, year, two years, whatever. And I just can't get because they've actually moved further and further away from where they were. And we sort of have what I describe as the pendulum swing effect is that when we go too far one way, we tend to overcompensate and go too far back the other way. Mm-hmm. And And that's sort of what I think a lot of people do trying to you know yeah. find their their happy place yeah and because we're so adaptable we just freaking adapt to to get the task done as well so you can be as you've seen you can be a long way off 
It's incredible. And, Some of the positions that come through my door, you will look at people and put them on the trainer and you go, wow, how have you yeah. been riding like that? Yeah. But they just adapt because they, and you mentioned this in your podcast with Damon, it's like riders aren't necessarily discerning enough to understand the difference between pain and suffering. Yeah. Suffering sure. is something we sign up for being a cyclist, being an, an athlete. You want to go charge up a, cl- a canyon or or hurt yourself in a local time trial or in a crit and cross the line and be heaving because you think that's cool. Okay, I get yep. it. Great. But there's a difference between that and my balls fell asleep every time I ride my bike, you know? Right. My vajay is on fire every time I sit on my saddle right. and, well, you know. Because it's, it's meant to hurt, right? It's meant to hurt. It's all, But there's a difference between pain. My knee hurts. Oh, tough yeah. it up. You know, just keep yeah, riding right, through exactly. it. It's, yep. you know, my quad hurts too. So knee pain is just something I have to get used to. That's not, yeah. that's, t- your, that's your body telling you, that's the pain teacher coming to tell you something. And Well, when you start taking, when you start taking vitamin I as a breakfast food. Oh man, don't um, get me started on the vitamin I. I love that. I love that. You bring that up. That's great. It's, but it's, it's true. So many people, well, I just pop a couple of, you know, I ride with guys here in town who are like super strong and they look like a monkey humping a football. Totally. Totally. And, it, and it's, and it's like, Oh dude, how, how do you feel? I feel okay. I'm like, Oh, do you want to go riding this weekend? Oh no, I've got a surgery on my foot this weekend. Yeah. This Friday. I'm like, yep. okay, dude, you know, yeah. there's, there's, there's plenty of ways we can get around that stuff. You just need to come and see me. Yes. And, and, you know, but that's, you know, part of the curse. I would love it if you would just briefly unpack. I think you had a really good analogy for people taking vitamin I or ibuprofen that you unpacked on Damon's podcast. Would you mind that? Because <laughs> I think that'll one? be useful. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I'm pretty sure it's not mine, but it's like you know, when you're in college and you, you take your roommate's hoodie and then by the end of next semester, you actually think it's your hoodie. Yep. Um, so I, I think that's where a lot of my stuff comes from sometimes. I'm the same it's way. The, the equivalent, it's, it's the equivalent of taking vitamin I is equivalent of hearing your smoke detector go off in your back room, walk into the back room and taking the batteries out. Yes. Thank God that, thank God that annoying noise went away, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean there's still no fire. There, exactly. There's still a fire. There's you're still just, a fire. You just you cut just off the noise it. signal. Yeah. I, Exactly. It amazes me how common it is for people to not have a basic understanding that they're turning off the pain signal, but they're not addressing. And just it, so it is a really through. interesting thing with the pain, with the pain signaling as well. It's sort of this whole shift on, you know, I've got to take anti-inflammatories and I've got to do recovery yeah. modes, which reduce my inflammation. No, inflammation is actually a good thing. It's your body's natural response to injury. Right. There's a reason and, that pathway exists. You, it's the way you it repairs it as well. That throbbing feeling you yeah. have is your body supplying excess blood yeah. to that to that location, trying to heal it. Mm-hmm. Now, longitudinal pain that is not good, but acute pain discomfort is one. It's telling you something's wrong, and two, it's the way of healing it. Because if you mask it, you don't know if it's getting any better or not. Long, so right, exactly. I, I coach my athletes through that all the time. You've got a, an acute injury. The last thing you want to do is douse that with vitamin I, with yeah. ibuprofen or whatever other pain, you know. Or, or I've been to the doctor and I've got a couple of cortisone shots. Yep, yep. I'm like, how'd, how'd that work out for you? I mean, in rare instances, I think cortisone can be useful, right? We, I think totally, most people totally. agree with that, right? But, but that goes back to what, what cycling is in the Tour de France. If my job yes. is going onto the field of play to make $10 million a year, 
and you need to shoot me with cortisone to help my team leader win the lifetime food on my opportunity. Table. Yes, and to support and, and, my family. And, you know, put my kids through college, then shoot me full of cortisone. I'm and, gonna do it. And that's just it. It's the, the confusion between the amateur athlete and the professional. And for some reason, I don't know if this is really so true in other sports. I kind of don't think it is the more I think about it. I don't practice a lot of other sports on an amateur regular level, but it seems to me that people who play tennis recreationally or even maybe in matches, they understand that they are not, you know, Serena Williams. They understand that they should not train like her or go to the extremes that she does in her training to make her paycheck and be one of the world's best tennis players. But in cycling, for some reason, we have this paradigm where we, we glorify the professionals. Okay, glorification is one thing, but we also imitate them. We try to do the same things they do, and we assume that that's only going to make us the best amateur. Right. But right. that doesn't actually make a lot of sense because our life demands are completely different. Our abilities are, by definition, already different. Unless you're a super ridiculously talented rider who just decided to become an amateur, then maybe. But even then, it doesn't make sense because you don't have the training context. You don't have the right. support network to deal with the fatigue created by a six-hour ride where you you know burn up you you create you know 450 tss because you're smashing mountains and sprints and all the stuff like it just doesn't so that mentality of i'm going to train like a pro but then i'm going to go mow my lawn and take my kids to the park and work 60 hours a week none of that really when you put it to a test of basic logic it's like what are you doing here this is a fool's errand you're just asking your you're, you're asking for a lesson yeah, absolutely. And the, the big thing, you know, you t- take tennis players. When tennis players, I don't think they're immune to taking vitamin I, but when they have problems and they take vitamin I and that doesn't work, they just take a pickleball. Yep. They find something else. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's we are a unique uh, <laughs> subset of <laughs> of human beings for mm. sure. I'm, I'm not sure whether that makes us better or worse. Um, than everybody else. I think it's just our own little unique um, eddy in the it, but current it, it, of, Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm really sure it just makes us the same. Yeah. But yeah. but yeah, it's a it's a very difficult you know running that fine line. But we are probably one of those sports driven by uh, the professional realm more than anything else. Interesting. And yeah, I think probably cycling has that has the, the the mantle on that one let's call it the kom um <laughs> and and i think uh running is a close second mm. and because get, you know yeah running like I had, a, I had a patient the other week who was running in college and they had her running 60 miles a week and she was getting one day off every three weeks wow that's and how is she doing yeah. with that workload? That's the not, question. Not so well. Not so well. Not That's so well. Why, why do you think? Why do you think she ended up at my place? Fair enough. Fair I'm enough. just like, hmm, mm. okay. How's that working out for you? And you know, now thanks to social media and our modern universe, we have the Lachlan Mortons, the David Goggins, the sure. Lael Wilcoxes to look to as these models of what's possible. I mean, Lael is one of those humans who just literally rides her bike like nine hours a day somehow year round and does all this ridiculous stuff. And that's amazing. Like I would crumble to pieces if I did that and I can handle a lot of bike riding, but I'm nowhere anywhere close to that level. And the same with Lockie, that guy's a mutant, but we have to stop. I think most of us, it's not constructive or helpful for us to compare ourselves to that standard of performance. We can admire it, 
and maybe we aspire to and embody that at a special time, you know, a weekend or a week of riding where we take our week off from work on the summer and we go see what we can do. But to try to always be uh, living in the shadow of that and measuring up to it somehow, I don't think that's constructive, nor would it be constructive for me. You know, I bust out my 20 pushups every once in a while randomly. I kind of treat movement as sort of random sporadic moments of challenge but I'm I'm nowhere close to doing a David Goggins, you know, he did 2,400 push-ups in 24 hours to break the Guinness Book of World Records. I mean, yeah, yeah. think about that for a moment. It's like, yeah. if I did that, I would detach my bicep tendon from some <laughs> critical <laughs> attachment. I'm sure of it. Or but, but, but he's a, he's a, he is the classic of, and he's an outlier's outlier. Yes. Right. Yes. So and we just, you don't, so funny. Um, do you know, uh, um, uh, I'm thinking uh, Inyo Miyuka. I was trying to think of his name again. Do you know Inyo Miyuka, who's an exercise yes. scientist out of the Basque Country? He's studied a lot of tape. He does a lot of stuff on work on tapering for peak performances, Correct. right? Yeah, lot of, lot yes. of, yeah, lot of, mm-hmm. lot of uh, you know, he works with every, but he doesn't just work with cyclists. So he was a junior doctor on Benesto. Correct. Yep. And so Inyo showed me once some data of the Benesto team. And, you know, there's this little bundle of data of the uh, physiological testing of the Benesto team, yes. which are by definition, because they're professional cyclists, outliers. Right. And then there was this little data point always to the right and higher than everybody else's data point. Mm-hmm. And that was Miguel Indurain. Yes. He was an outlier's outlier. Yes. And so that just shows how rare those are. You know, like in a group of outliers, uh, you know, there's they all sort of group pretty close together. That's what it takes to be a professional. Mm-hmm. But then there's this, there's always this one freak. freak. These are and the Jan O'Rourke's, the Lance Armstrong's, the Miguel exactly, Andrews, the, the Marianne the, the, Fosses. The, exactly. They just sit outside that, that data set again. But that's the mm-hmm. thing we look to emulate, which is not what we need to do. Yeah. Because, you know, we just need to get this foundation. I mean, I think, you know, Kelly Sturat sums it up best. You know, it's the ready state. Yep. You just want to be, you want to maintain yourself in this ready state so you can perform all these tasks. Mm. And that was an evolutionary thing, I think, more than anything else. You know, you just had to be ready to either, you know, run <laughs> or or fight. I just, yeah? I just read uh, Joel Green's book, The Immunity Code. Have you read that by any chance? No, I haven't, no. He talks about this concept of young muscle. I spoke about this on the podcast with Jesse, but I'll just repeat it here because I think it's really interesting. And his definition of young muscle is, can you wake up in the morning at dawn, like walk downstairs, walk out to the end of the driveway and sprint up the block 20 seconds full speed without injuring yourself? Right. Right. This is biologically, theoretically necessary, but it's also an indicator of how functional we are. Can you go from zero to maximum flat out without, you know, pulling a hammy or wounding yourself. And he's talking about bare feet, right? That's a tall ask. Now, concrete, maybe that's a, that's a pretty big ask. Okay. Let's find a soft surface. If, Mm -hmm. and I'm not suggesting anyone on this podcast go out and do this. Like the chances of most people injuring themselves that they try this are pretty high. I've been playing with it a little bit. I haven't done the barefoot run yet, but I've been jumping out my driveway on my bike and hitting it full gas just to see what happens. And just try it kind of goes against conventional logic which is oh let's start slowly and warm up but right. i think there are times to rev the metabolic engine a bit and so anyway it's but an interesting it, concept but from an evolutionary standpoint if you had to warm up um you did <laughs> that's that's tiger snack 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I don't have to be the fastest runner in the world. I just have to be faster than the guys behind. The rest of the tribe. Exactly. <laughs> and colloquially, exactly. we always use the just, example of being chased by a tiger or a bear. But let's be realistic. Like in this era that we always measure ourselves against, this hypothetical history of Neolithic man, probably <laughs> most of the death that occurred was either by disease, falling off a cliff, or being attacked by another tribe. Right. You were fighting other men. I'm sure of that. Probably depends sure. on what type of the world we're talking about, but men like to fight each other. Let's be honest. So <laughs> we're still working on getting over that one, guys. You can do it. Right. Right. <laughs> let's all it's go. Like, let's all go hug and have a beer. Right. Whether it be a bike ride or whether it be uh, with spears and uh, well, and sport is one thing. Sport is one thing because that if that gives rid of our competitive outlet, our our niggles, we'll say yeah. our angry niggles, and we can go race each other in a crit. Then that's constructive way to have a socially acceptable outcome for our anger, I suppose. Yeah, 100%, man. That's like... Yeah. Well, we've had an awesome conversation. I think we've gone around the world about three times, which is uh, giving ourselves a lot of credit here, but I'll, I'll give yeah. you that credit. Um, Greg, if you've got just a little more time, I would love to kind of maybe do... We, we could do a little bit of a rapid fire ending sure. if you've got a bit. Sure, Yeah. I wanted to unpack tap into some of your experience as a fitter. You've been fitting for so long and you've seen so many human bodies in motion. I want to attack, uh, unpack an idea that I've had floating around in my head recently, which is sort of like, I think bike fitting in so many ways is still trapped in 1904. And so many aspects of bicycle design are, including shoes. Uh, don't stop me on shoes, please. I've got the most amazing shoe project that I'm going to uncork later though, that I've been working on with some guys that is going to awesome. blow everyone's mind. So I'm super excited for that. Just to give everybody a teaser, there'll be a podcast coming. I'll tell you about it later on email if you want, Greg. But nice. it's going to be, it's going to absolutely drop a nuclear bomb on the world of cycling shoes. I had, I had someone say to me the other day when I was explaining my methodology regarding foot stuff. Yep. And, he's, and the guy basically goes, so hang on, are you saying that every shoe on the market has their holes in the wrong place? I'm like, <laughs> yes, that's exactly yes, what I'm that's saying. that's what I'm saying. And every and shoe like, on the market has... How is that possible? I'm like, I don't, I, I'm asking the same question, dude. Because they came from 1904. Well, that's, because, I think, the answer. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. my opinion. It's the same reason handlebar design is complete garbage and has no respect for neutral shoulders or proper breathing mechanics or right. a neutral wrist. It's the same reason, you know, why do we have a, a bar that comes straight out from the stem on the sides? Because it's looked that way since 1904. Why do we have right. cycling saddles that look like a turbo still or an Arione? I mean, shoot me now. Like, I'll just say it. I, I feel fully licensed to bash that saddle because I rode it for eight years myself at the, the freaking Olympic Games. Dude, yeah. I rode the I rode the Arione as well. I have no idea how I got comfortable on it. And I'm known for saying that nobody, nobody sets out to make a bad saddle other than physique. Oh, my God. Thank you. I, I, I'll just say it point blank. Physique Arione, <laughs> worst saddle on the market. I'm going right. to just lay it out right there. Yep. Hopefully I won't get sued for that. It's the worst product on the market. No, hang on. Could we just clarify? Is that a snake, a bull, or a... <laughs> what was the third one? A chameleon? What? Chameleon. Totally. A mountain goat. I don't remember their animal analogies. A snake, but... a bull, or a chameleon. Oh gosh. Really? Come on. Someone slapped the marketing department around a little bit and just... The physique. The, dar the dartboard of... <laughs> of saddle fitting. You can literally just hit the wall and send the rider right. out the door and don't worry about things like offset, height, saddle angle. Why would we conserve? Why would we care right. about those? We can just put someone in Arione and let them sort of sort it out on the road, you know, <laughs> plus or minus 50 mils. Right. 
I saw a great, this reminds me, I got to interrupt myself for a moment. I saw the most awesome meme on Instagram a while ago. I think it was, there's some cat three account or something. It's super funny. And he has all these super funny posts. And one of them was bike fitter uses random num- number generator to produce saddle height. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's Loved spot it. on. Right? I think it. I saw that one as well. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to print that out, hang it on my wall in my shop. Yeah, so not, we should make, we should make a, re- uh, a, a t-shirt out of that one. Right. I'm, I'm down. It's all about the merch, man. It's all about the merch. Got to have a good t-shirt and a sense of humor about your own. Exactly. Yeah. Your own line of work. Don't take yourself right? too seriously. So, <laughs> okay. So shoes, saddles, bars, all from 1901, which brings me to our kind of, there's a million Italian wives tales about bike fitting, right? Mm-hmm. Old school stuff that still persists today. I mean, some of the more obvious examples are your knees should actually graze the top tube when you pedal because it's more arrow, which is like, I'm, you're stabbing me in the eyeballs. Didn't with a the fork. UCI just ban that? <laughs> <laughs> no, they're still trying to figure out how long your sock should be. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Right? I, have the sock, I have the sock measuring device in the studio. <laughs> so I would love it if you would comment on a few of these old colloquialisms of bike fitting and tell me what you think yeah. about them. Are they are they good? Are they bad? Are they accurate? Are they inaccurate? What can we take away from them? Maybe we've got some positive you can take away. Maybe all of it should be thrown yeah. in the trash. But I have to be careful because I do run a cycling camp in Italy and immigration finds out about this. They probably won't let me in the country anymore. <laughs> I'm coaching a guy who's on a French team right now and you, we're, we're battling this. You, yeah, you talk shit about our about cycling our, Yes, ideas. about our Coney yeah. manual. Yeah, yeah. I, I, dude, I have a copy. You do? I love it. Oh, oh, dude, yeah, totally. Oh my gosh! All right, when I'm in Vegas, I'm gonna steal it, and take it to Kinko's. If you're okay with that, <laughs> I need, I need a copy of that thing. That's history. Yeah, it's That's... good. It's pretty cool, man. Looking back at it, you're like, okay, yeah. okay. I see where we're coming from. Uh, all right, okay. So shoot, is... shoot, rapid fire round. Rapid fire round. All right. Um, wait. Oh, okay, I gotta interrupt. One more thing. This actually happened at the Garmin camp. I so Jeff Brown was our chief mechanic when I worked for Garmin in 2014. And he actually told me this. You'll appreciate this story that in training camps, he had been on the mechanic on teams where the mechanics were instructed when the bike fitter came to camp and they talked about saddle height and saddle offset and all these things, the, the mechanics ins- were instructed by the director of the team to put all the handlebars at the same height on every single bike so that it would look good for the photos. Yes, absolutely. No, that does not surprise me at all. Right? I mean, this is stuff that comes out of old school bike fitting. We got to put white tape on all the bars. They all have to be the same height so that when the riders are standing next to their bikes and we've got all 20 riders in a row, the bars look uniform. I mean, that's where... And riders probably rode, most of them rode that way the whole season, I bet. A few of them were probably like, this doesn't work for me, I got to change it. But it's sort of like, like I say to people about, when you think about cycling in Europe, yeah. It, it's kind of like basketball in America. The, the good guys are what they are, and we're going to slap you on a bike. And if you don't go fast, there's actually another guy just around the corner who goes fast. Yeah. We're just going to, you know, that was sort of the default position. If you can't ride this fast, somebody else will. And I think that's sort of what's driven a lot of our positioning and is the- one, aesthetics, you know. I've had plenty of people come in who I've repositioned them and the guys come back, um, you know, two weeks later going, yeah, I, I really just don't like this position. The way my bike looks. And I, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, what do you don't like about it? He goes, too many spaces, man. Yeah. I, I, the, guys, the guys were just giving me shit on the ride. You have to take all those spaces out. I'm like, 
you know we tested that and it wasn't as good as the position you're in yeah and he's like yeah but dude my bike just doesn't look cool yeah it so it's all that's also a unique eddy of cycling is that it's so it's such a weird blend of function and form and there's so many people are so in love with the beauty of the bike and i understand that bikes are beautiful objects i I I collect them i collect them like pieces of art right yeah they're beautiful and yet they're also look i'm just gonna spoil the plot for you guys i think greg and i are on the same page here please allow me to speak for you briefly but function always precedes form that is the yeah. rule. And when I have people come in and they look at SMP saddles for the first time, they're like, why does it have that weird beak nose? I don't, it looks like Gonzo. I don't like it. And to someone who's used to looking at a turbo or a flight, a, a, an SMP looks really weird until you no, sit dude, on it. It doesn't look like Gonzo. It looks like a plague mask. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. It's a, it's, a, it's a 2020 Corona edition plague Corona mask. Corona edition <laughs> saddle. Yeah. And why do they have that? I don't know, SM, man. SMP missed their window there. On marketing, they they did. They did. They were, well, they were way ahead of their time. But, yeah, back in the 1400s. Right, right. So, but then they don't care once they sit on it. 99% of the yeah, riders, because they realize sure. how comfortable it is, and suddenly yeah. it looks a lot better. But form follows function. So, okay. Well, form your 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 well your function will dictate your form. Yeah, even more well said. Yes, it should if you've got your priorities yeah, totally, in, wha- out of, totally. in whack. Yeah, yeah. And and then performance comes down the you know yeah the other end. Okay, Greg. True or false? Uh, plus or minus? What do we take away from this? Riders will make more power if they slide forward on the saddle on the flats, or air quotes on the rivet, and push back false. on the climbs. False. False. Why? Start at start at ten. <laughs> oh. Yeah. No. There's no way if if you're you know I think that goes back to our earlier comment. The rise. The reason they feel like they're creating more power sliding forwards is because they were overextended in the first place mm. or and as their breathing comes up as they as they come under load their functional torso extension they try to shorten it because they're employing too many postural muscles holding mm. themselves in that longer position so maybe their hip hinge kind of sucks and so they're not able one, to oh, make well, it in that longer once position. once again tick tick yeah. all that apply right um right. yeah okay and it amazes me how many riders actually don't, even riders who've been in the sport a number of years, don't understand this basic concept. So I'm just going to outline it to hopefully this will be helpful to some people. But if you want to increase or decrease your cockpit reach, that is the distance from the saddle to the bars, you do this by changing stem length or bar reach or perhaps brake lever shifter shape. You do not do this by moving your saddle forward. Right. Saddle fore aft impacts your of relationship of center of mass to the to the axles and the bottom bracket but it also increase it influences muscle function and muscle recruitment patterns so as you push your saddle further back you upregulate or uh, increase the likelihood of recruiting more posterior chain as you push it forward you become more quad dominant anterior muscle chain Fair enough. Sure. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. You you lose the advantage. The further forward you come, you lose the mechanical advantage of the length of your femur. Right. Agreed. Yes. Yeah. Well said. And this is a basic concept that I think even well the reach concept aside that a lot of riders don't get, but I don't think a lot of fitters understand the relationship between the butt position relative to the bottom bracket well, and how much it dictates a, a muscle people, function. 
for, with a lot of frames, you can't get there. If they keep building these 75 degree seat tube angles and then putting zero, zero offset, offset posts, posts on them because they look pretty, I'm like, just stop it. I know. It's one of the other blessings of SMPs. They have 95 millimeter long rails, so you can exactly, actually yeah. get yeah. the saddle in the right place a lot of times. But I, I was thinking about that the other day. I was thinking, wow, this is like we've Dude, already seen know- this this trend in mountain biking, the C tube angles are ridiculously steep. And then everybody wants to use a dropper post, which are the right. vast majority are zero offset. Can't get their mass far enough. Can't get them back, far enough back. So, yeah, and, so, and then, and then to get their mass far enough back, they have to put a 35 millimeter stem on their bike. I know it's yeah. But dude, let's, we can go there all day long. Like it's like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and an interesting thing being try and find, try and find the FSA 32 millimeter offset post these days. <laughs> yeah. You just can't. And you, and you call FSA and they're like, yeah, we look on our records. It doesn't show that those are that popular. That's because you never bring enough of them in. Right. And, and you know, but yeah, if you've got a 75 degree seat tube angle, trying to do that with a 20, trying to get a good position mm-hmm. on a larger frame with a 20 millimeter offset seat post, you're just not going to get there. You're not quite there. Yeah. No. And we're still waiting for Thompson to come out with their 25 offset post. They never quite figured yeah. it out, apparently. Yeah. Finding a really good setback seat post that's really solid and dependable especially for a bigger rider it won't slip yeah, and won't totally. it's a totally. challenge and then even those fsa ones had 32 but the bolts weren't great on those and the top right sucked, exactly but, yeah, yeah yeah they're they're, they're des- again they're designed around 140 pound rider yes yes or they're designed to be which as is, light which as is possible ironically take a look at uh next time you see gilberto simone's bike mm-hmm. look at he's, he's running a 32 mil offset yep to get and what because kind of he, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Get, needs to get that leverage yeah okay number two a smaller frame is lighter and stiffer therefore better <laughs> i actually mistyped this in my questions i wrote higher yeah no i saw it i saw yep. you mean lighter and stiffer okay so have you ever seen rider hydrodile on a bike <laughs> <laughs> actually i've got a great writer story for you if you want to hear that <laughs> So yeah, I mean, or, or Adam Hansen for that matter. Yes. What's uh, Hansen's what? He's got to be 185 yeah. cm, 190, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, relevant units, that's like 511, 60. Yeah, I, he's definitely six. Yeah. And what size frame is he riding on? Probably a, a 60 or something, 62 big frame. Or yeah, he's well. I mean, he's riding 140 mil minus 17, right? With a super narrow bar, and a, and a and a reversed seat post pushed forward away forward on the rails on a 38 on a 38 uh, 380 bar. Okay, I didn't even get to ask you this question. Forget this rapid fire crap. What is with the trend? With uh, do you think this is a carryover from triathlon? Because I no, flipped through carryover from aerodynamics, dude. <sighs> dude, here's the question I ask people in the last. In the previous two years of the Tour de France, Mm -hmm. I have never seen so many front wheel washout crashes in my life. Because the weight distribution's all screwed up. Because their weight distribution's because they're chasing arrows so much. Yep. Yep. And and I I I hazard to say this, Mm. but we saw it with Chloe at the World Championships. You're probably you know, well. She was on a TT bike, though. I mean, yeah, she was on a TT bike. But once again, they and I, and I expect them at that level to chase Aero of that course. much in that particular discipline, of course. Because you know, a reduction in CDA is going to be the difference between winning and losing a gold medal. It's Chloe Diger. She's at Worlds. Exactly, one hundred percent get it. But mm-hmm. that that just goes to show what a fine line that is. Because she is a a a 
I've never ridden with her. I don't know her, but just watching her, she looks like an exceptional bike handler. Yep. She looks like she can handle a bike, man. So it's not, but then you see that position and then you see every amateur and, and age group triathlete chasing that position. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's just the, but yeah, they're, they're, I've never seen so many front wheel washouts in my life. Mm. And, and that's, that's what it's about. They're going for the slam stem yep. forward weight shift. And it just goes to show what outliers they are. Cause in that position, they can still generate massive drive. Mm-hmm. Their output is still huge. They're adaptable. I mean, look at how Durant Thomas's position has evolved over the oh. years. He used to look so clean and traditional in my eye. Right. And now he's slammed forward in this bizarre position and it works for him. He's still winning races, but also you have to look at the well, circumstances. Did, he never it, hits the wind. Does it? Yeah, well, the does first it year he won, for him? The first year he won the tour, it did. Yeah. But yep, yep. now I don't know what... But is that really what made the difference, right? If he right. had been in a traditional position, would he have won the tour by more? Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, we can play these games all the time. And that, and I yep. I think that's human nature to ask that question. But of course, it's also kind of a, a meaningless question because there's no parallel universe where we can have Durant do the same Correct. training in the old it's, position. We can double blind this one, right? Correct. Right. <laughs> in fact, I would argue while science does teach us some things, most of the really meaningful questions, you can't double blind. No, correct. And there's no, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't understand the this full-on aero forward weighted position yeah. makes absolutely no sense to me. Okay, so if aerodynamics is the first reason that we think riders are doing that, which I would agree with, yeah. um, what about what about how does this change muscle function, uh, muscle recruitment patterns, right? If, yep. going back to our conversation earlier, if the saddle's coming forward and it sends you into quad dominance by definition, I mean, you, this mm-hmm. is yep. this is one of the ways in which bike fitting is so in the dark because it's amazing how, you know, if you go to a gym and you see someone doing a squat and their back is rounded <laughs> over in flexion and they've got the bars yeah. loaded up with a bunch of weight and their knees are coming way forward over their toes, first of all, they're going to rip their Achilles tendons off. You know, well, before that, they're going to compromise their back. and oh, the teller across the room. Yep. So any strength coach who's even like 10101 like the most basic rule ever it's like keep your back straight during a squat push your butt back as you descend then you Mm -hmm. get into all the finer points of that but for some reason this basic relationship of joint mechanics is completely disregarded in most worlds of bike fitting it's like it's it's unbelievable it's unbelievable and so okay if it's fine to slam your saddle forward and just smash the pedals with quads all the time, which goes against a lot of the science we've seen, which shows that the more advanced professional athletes, what you're doing is when you're a, when you're a beginning cyclist, you go jab at the pedals, you, you're in your first year or two of cycling, you are making more torque. You're focusing more of the torque at your knees. The better you mm-hmm. get, the more you migrate that torque towards the hips. This right. is like, when you understand this, it makes a lot of sense because what has more muscle around it, the knee or the hip, what's more stable? Well, assuming you're using correctly, the hip. Right. So it's going to make right. sense that riders solve that equation on their own by learning to generate force at the hips. Your hips is your power center. It's where your Don Tien well, is. What I always say to people regarding strength training, I'm like, hey, you lift, right? You know, or, or do you do you lift, bro? Right. That's usually what you say. Um, but, you know, and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm like, which is bigger, your squat or your deadlift? Right. And it's just like, yeah, that's because your hips are more powerful than, yeah. than your knees are. Than your knees are, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. And it's by a considerable amount. Yes, it is. It is. And you, that's a great way to illustrate it. 
everyone's deadlift is much stronger than their squat because they're primarily to use a deadlift just so if people aren't from a strength and conditioning background they don't quite get this primarily using the hips as a as the way to move the bar in a deadlift there's some move, knee movement yep. but mostly it's hip and vice versa in the squat you've got a lot of both and there's a lot yep. of knee knee tension and torque driven from the knees in a squat so that's why people can't lift as much in a squat right. as they can in a deadlift period and, and the other thing is to understand which makes it even more relevant than to cycling a deadlift is from a flexed hip position with extension yep a squat is from an extended hip ex, uh, hip position yep right yep so the deadlift is just more relevant to the mechanic we use in cycling because we need to create force from a flexed hip position, hip position. yep downwards yes so but, what's happening with a squat is you're resisting force downwards mm -hmm. from an extended hip and extended knee position, whereas in a deadlift, you're delivering force from a flexed hip and flexed knee position into the ground, and that's right. or into the pedal in our case. Into the pedal, which to be technical, the pedal is open chain, a deadlift or, or a squat is closed chain, so... Right still waiting for a person to make that deadlift machine that's open chain i've got a few designs in my head maybe we can get together and make our next uh 20 million <laughs> together when we make this machine yeah, right Greg. but so that's why i, I like our next million pesos exactly <laughs> <laughs> and so then to expand on that squatting and deadlifting are both bilateral but how much cycling is bilateral none there's only Zero. two bilateral sports in the world kobe mm. do you know what they are Two by well, I, love, uh, I love posing this question to people. Let me think about it. That's a great question. Well, uh, powerlifting when you're actually lifting. You got one. Okay. You got one. Um, it's an Olympic sport. I'll give you that one. I don't know. What, what would be the other bilateral? That's a good question. Rowing. Ah. Okay. And, and it's only truly, if you want okay, to get truly bilateral, yep. rowing in a skull is right. truly bilateral but rowing in a quad or a pair or a double skull actually as well or an eight uh, are not you know it's truly bilateral lower extremity for sure yeah but but that that whole thing is you know yeah sculling double sculling and olympic lifting right truly truly bilateral but that, otherwise than that we have a dominant it's either it's a contralateral movement so it, it, yeah, and it's unilateral in terms of lower extremities, right? So Correct. there's a yep. nugget for you if you're designing your own strength and conditioning program. Yeah, of course, bilateral strength plays a role, but ultimately, if you want to be sports specific, you've got yeah. to find a way to make open chain movement because that's primarily what cycling is. Not all cycling is open chain, but most of it is, mm -hmm. which means the surface is moving away from you and it's unilateral. So that's why I yeah, prefer so, things like suitcase deadlifts and Romanian split squats and lunges and reverse right. lunges and all those goodies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so stay away from the leg extension machine and get oh. away from that leg press machine. Get away from all exercise machines machine. and pick up right. a kettlebell. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, I mean, one of the big things I use in strength programming for my athletes is identifying what I describe as a bilateral deficit. So by identifying the bilateral deficit, it's like on a single leg, how much weight difference is there? How mm -hmm. much load difference can you tolerate? Because everybody will tolerate a different amount leg right. to leg. Right. And so then you program for the lower the weak the, leg. The weak leg, correct. And you never let the strong leg exceed the weak leg. Right. And 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 sorry, <laughs> uh when you're choosing the loading. Yeah. It's the same concept in saddle height. If you got one if you're dropping a hip, 
then you you've got your lowest, early warning yeah. side, yep. which is the side that's reaching more than you go to until those Correct. sides equal at. Yeah, same concept. Yeah, Correct. that's very well said. Yeah. Uh, so I, you've got your power plate in your gym. I, I Maybe at some point I'll have access to one of those, but my poor man's power plate that I've been designing in my head, haven't really played with this too much except for myself, is just an upside down BOSU ball with a Neboso mat on top of it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> poor um, man's power plate. What do you think of that? Yeah, so no, so I no, I have a force plate, not a power plate. Sorry, sorry, I misspoke. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So my force plate I use for measuring force production. I and, mean, we can go into that as well. Well, about... and the point being is you see those left-right asymmetries in Correct. different exercises, right? So what yeah. I'm saying is if I flip down, flip a Bosu ball upside down so the flat surface is up and put a Neboso mat on it to give some texture, make people well, do squats on it. That's a self-limiting exercise, right? You'll just right. fall off. <laughs> You'll fall off if you're really asymmetrical, but it'll show us quickly it's self-regulating. You have if, yeah. when you squat on that, assuming your feet are equidistant from the center, to a certain yeah. degree, you've got to produce equal force. Otherwise, the Bosa ball tip over and you fall over. That's yeah. what's beautiful another about tip it. For my, another tip that for my for my coaching philosophy, the strength stuff, is if you cannot display mastery and control of range of motion with your body weight, I have no business putting an external load. load on you. Yes. The perfect analogy that Paul uses for that is. If you've got big strength asymmetries, which hint most people do, especially if you've been a cyclist for many years, you basically made your lower extremities in the sagittal plane more durable. And you've mm -hmm. probably done that asymmetrically because almost everybody does. We could probably say everybody does. It's just a question of how much, to what degree. If you go in and arbitrarily apply strength, there are two problems with that. First of all, in any exercise where the exercise inherently challenges muscles that are already weak, the high likelihood is that after a couple reps, you're going to start to, those muscles are going to fatigue very quickly and you're going to start to cheat and find a way to use the muscles that are already quite strong. Yep, high level compensation. High level compensation. And so then what you're doing when you're doing this strength routine is you're just adding load onto a system that's already has an imbalance of strength and you're adding more fatigue to it. And this is why I think it's very common for athletes to go try strength training and then be like, oh, it didn't work for me. I was always smashed. Yeah. I could never ride hard. Yeah, right. You know, my legs were always tired. Well, legs hurt. yeah. So you're compensating by using the stuff that you're already using on the bike. So it's not really constructive. We want to use strength to magnify the force ceiling or, or train the force ceiling of those muscles in the right way. But we also want to offset all the overbuilding and over strengthening of certain chains or muscle groups that we have that are constantly emphasized in cycling. So that's problem one. Problem two is Paul uses this analogy, which is just beautiful because Paul checks a holistic coach, but he uses the analogy of a bike wheel. He's like, look, if your wheel's out of true, okay, the rim's wobbly. Some spokes are tight and some are loose. That's how a, a wheel always comes through the shop door when it's out of true. Apply strength arbitrarily or uniformly to that wheel would be the equivalent of tightening every spoke and expecting the wheel to get straight. Right. Nobody's wheel straight when they walk through the door of your shop or my shop, right? They're all, we're all crooked. We're all asymmetrical. So when you just go to the gym and strengthen everything, not that we really do, but conceptually you get the idea mm -hmm. that we're tightening the spokes that are too tight. And we're, well, typically, we're typically what happens is most people, when they start a strength training program, what they end up doing is putting strength on top of dysfunction. Yes. So that just locks, that locks the dysfunction in, in even place. deeper. Yes. So they're getting farther from the mark. You'd be better off sitting on the couch and napping and then just riding your bike, to be honest. Yeah, to be honest, yeah. And this and is why, going back to the martial art approach, yep. with strength training, it's, it's the same thing. Movement, display 
mastery of movement with your body weight, then I'll put an external load on you. But there needs to be a progression regression mm. curve on that. Yep. Because you just can't, once again, we want to go, I want to walk into the gym and walk up to that straight bar and put three wagon wheels on each side and crack it off the ground. Mm -hmm. Just doesn't work that way. Yeah. You don't, you know, it's just like, I want to, I want to start cycling and, and next week I want to do an Ironman, you know, I'm like, whatever. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I've ever heard anybody say that. Never, never. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Greg, uh, we could probably talk for another two hours, but we um, could, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I get, I get a feeling we're gonna have to do a round two. I would love to do a round two. That'd be great. That'd be great. I would, uh, I would really welcome that opportunity. And also, I'm serious about coming to, yeah, to occupy your guest house and and learn from you if you're up for it. And maybe we can tell me, tell me, yeah, just let me know what your scheduling is, man. I'm always cool to have uh, like-minded people down here, and we can show you some of the the beautiful riding we have down here which is not quite colorado it's different mm. but it's as still beautiful in our own way there there even, are even in, even in august we just get up early okay it gives us more time for coffee drinking afterwards fair enough fair enough. <laughs> i'm I, I know there are beautiful areas in vegas and we got that whole rud run bugs bunny roadrunner thing going on there but i'm still trying to figure out how you moved from new zealand to vegas you left one of the most amazing places on earth yeah it's sort of it's funny it's there's a expression we use in new zealand was the reason it's difficult to be new zealand uh successful in new zealand is it's too easy to go to the beach <laughs> i understand okay um but yeah no i came up in uh 2002 yeah 2002 and ended up uh on the east coast and i spent six years on the east coast mm -hmm. and then well, I was I, you know, I was in New York, and New York was a great place to have clients at the time because there was a lot of alpha females and alpha males there. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of people who had disposable income. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of nice bikes and a lot of coaching and a lot of bike fitting to be done. Yep. And then uh, while actually while we were out here in Las Vegas on a vacation, and a construction site next to our building, uh, which we were in a 23-story building on the Upper East Side, a 35-story building on the next corner collapsed wow. and crushed our, crushed our building. Wow. Uh, and then the crane fell off the top. It was in the middle of construction. It fell off the top and came down, hit our building across the street and crushed it. And I took, sort of took it as a sign. <laughs> And I'm yeah. like, hmm, okay, maybe time to leave New York. Wow. And at that, at that point, that was 2008. Okay. And and the market then died and a lot of clients went away. Yep. Uh, so it sort of made sense. And I looked at moving out to San Diego, to Tucson, mm -hmm. to Evergreen, Colorado, actually, was uh -huh. one of the places we looked at, mm -hmm. um, to San Diego or Vegas. And at the time, you know, the market had crashed. Vegas was financially a great place to come and i came out to vegas and looked at the cycling scene out here and it was pretty immature there was some obviously some guys racing bikes out here but there wasn't you know a lot of cycling being done here and it was, it's a beautiful place i mean i've lived all over the world and vegas i really think is a beautiful place surrounded by mountains you know we get snow up on the mountaintops and mm -hmm. i like the heat I was raised as a child in Fiji and, and then I went to school in New Zealand. So I'm on, spent a lot of time in Asia as well as a teenager. So I'm not afraid of the heat. Okay. Uh, and you know, here we are, we live, you know, out in the suburbs of Las Vegas. I'm from my door on my mountain bike. I'm about seven minutes from the trailhead from about 110 miles of single track. 
Wow. And obviously from out my door on my road bike, I can ride for, I don't know, it's changed a little bit since I moved here in 2008, but I used to be able to hit about 45 miles with no stoplight. Wow. So, you know, you just head straight out into the desert and it's, you know, it's desert. It's different. It's a different landscape, but it's sort of beautiful in its own way. The way the light strikes the desert and the reflectivity. And when it rains, we get this beautiful smell of creosote coming out of the desert. And it's unique, like, you know, mm. and, and, and the riding community here has grown. And it's a really good, great, strong community here now. And mountain biking, road cycling, and we're close. You know, we can drive to Utah. We can drive up to St. George where there's phenomenal mountain biking up in St. George and Hurricane. Yep. Um, yep. So yeah, dude, cool. I can think of worse places to be, you know. Okay. Um, okay. But it's a and the market here's been. I've been very, very blessed to have great clients here, and I've now got a great little studio right next door to a Pete's Coffee <laughs> up in Summerlin, which is you know a great neighborhood up here, and uh, you know kind of right I'm across the parking lot from a tier one specialized store. So okay. no shortage, no shortage of customers coming through. Interesting. Um, so yeah. Cool. Cool. It's, well, it's, that's what, that's how we ended up here. Yeah. Well, I've got a stepbrother who lives in Vegas now with his wife and I haven't seen him in a long time. And it sounds like, uh, I'm bringing my mountain bike when I come to see you. Yeah. yeah <laughs> no, definitely. If you had the choice, even though I, you know, I like the road ride, the mountain biking here is not what people expect and it's just awesome. Okay. It's like a, we get tons of people coming down from BC and all the cold climates through the winter all coming down here to ride because the yep. riding is so good. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking time to come on today and do all the philosophy and all the things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Attention, Space Monkeys, public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor, so don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet. Also, we talk about lots of things, and that means we have opinions. My guests' opinions are not necessarily reflective of the opinions of anyone who is employed by or works at Fast Talk Labs. Also, if you want to reach out, talk to me about things feedback on the podcast good bad or otherwise you may do so at the following email address info at cycling that's all spelled just like it sounds which again is self-evident gratitude